Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast, a snowy Brandon Howard Thurston. How are you, Brandon? I'm, I'm good, Chris. Uh, it is... Saturday, right? Today is Saturday. We talked last night, and I said, "All right, I'll talk to you tomorrow." And you're like, "I was going to go to work tomorrow." Is yeah. Tomorrow, Saturday. Yeah, I thought I thought yesterday was Thursday, and I thought for sure I had to uh, work again today. So I was planning on getting up at my usual 7:45 and heading out the door. But luckily, uh, you alerted me that no, the weekend is upon us. So. So, we're, so we're, did you stay up all night watching Wrestle Kingdom 12? Is that what happened? I did stay up, yeah. I took the, the following day off of work. I, I stayed up. I, I took no New Japan nap, nothing. I think this is what I did last year when I realized that it's just, just futile to try to make yourself take a nap, or at least try to make me take a nap and then get up in time. It just makes things worse. So I just powered right through it with, with caffeine, and uh, it was no problem, really. I, just, uh, I, t- I did take the post-Wrestle Kingdom uh, hard sleep, though. But I got I back on like, track pretty quick. I feel like before next year, we have to make sure the Russellnomics coffee mugs are available so that That's we right. can plug the caffeine high, that it will be fueled by Russellnomics as you're watching a Russell Kingdom. Absolutely. We've got to figure out a design. Like, what do we want to put on the on the coffee mug? Just the logo or something? No, it's, I think it's got to be a really cool graph, right? Because that could stretch across <laughs> the uh, the circumference of a, of a cup. You know, uh, probably cost about six thousand dollars a cup to do that in a special print. But uh, we had somebody say that they went and they ordered an infinity cube after I plugged it on our show last week. Yeah, yeah, my little my little uh, fittish fittish yeah uh, my little fidget toy I talked about. But let's start off with uh, Russell Kingdom twelve. I feel like that's the biggest news of the week. Yeah, um, the show I caught some of it. You caught all of it. Uh, besides Gino Gambino. Uh, was there any other big star makers for you on this show? Was Who is Gino Gambino? He was in the Rumble. He was, uh, uh, like a, uh, I think, an Australian guy. Is that Mr. Juicy? I don't know if that's Mr. Juicy. I just, I was so amused when I was listening to a, a rundown of the show, and they talked about Gino Gambino. And I was just like, wow, is this a, a Pittsburgh Indies in the late 90s? What, yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. Well, so how much of this did you watch? So I was able to watch the Kota Bushi and Cody Rhodes match. I watched the four-way uh, with Will Ospreay, Hiromu Takahashi, Kashida, and Skrull. 
I watched the Omega Jericho match, yeah. and I watched um, highlights of the Okada Nido match. I wasn't able to find the whole match on YouTube easily last night. Yeah, so did not use New Japan World for this, right? I did not. I was yeah. a uh, I was a freeloader, a uh, a pirater, a uh, a a recontent aggregator, if you will. Right. Uh, you know, somebody sent me a link today to What Culture. And what culture has taken my tweets about Jimmy Uso and the Iron Man mm-hmm. and turned them into a 10-minute video? Content. And it's amazing because it's literally just the guy. It's a, a, a British fella. Yeah. Um, restating what I said in these tweets here, but with extra pauses and emphasis. And I was like, this is what I do on my podcast. Oh, right. I'm stealing my gimmick. Yeah. The, but, they're, uh, they're exploiting unextracted value that we have not extracted from WrestleNomics. Yeah, yeah. The the digital ecosystem is yet another tier that has yet to be uh, completely penetrated yeah. by our our ad maximization model possibilities. So, but you did you watch the whole show or did you skip the run? Um, I, I I did what I usually do. I have it on and I paid various degrees of attention to it throughout. I did rewatch a few of the matches though in anticipation for this because I figured we would be uh, talking about it and I might ha- actually have to have opinions about it. Um, well, let's 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 split this into both a business section and a review section. So let's do the review section first, and then we can talk business. Okay, fine. I'll, uh, I'll, people... I'll, I'll scold you for not uh, ordering New Japan World later. Then, yes, exactly. So so let's start off with with the the um the review side of it. Um, you know, if Wrestle Kingdom is Japan's WrestleMania, do you think the production values were there? Yeah, I mean, WrestleMania production values are going to be bigger. But uh, I, I I think of that in the in the scale of the revenue of the companies, you know, seven hundred twenty nine million dollars versus thirty four million dollars. WWE is like twenty one times uh, the size of New Japan when it comes to revenue. So, of course, the production values of of a WrestleMania are going to be bigger. I remember one point Dave Meltzer put over Pride production values for the New Year's Eve show so much that I went and got myself a bootleg copy of of the pride new year's eve show um because of course this was kind of the days before you could just find it easily on daily motion or youtube but um it it was impressive you know you you watch and you're like wow this really is kind of future forward uh stuff and by no means is kind of new japan playing in that exact same arena as pride was in terms of the values and the dollars that the tv stations were willing to pump in Mm -hmm. but no i thought it looked good i thought it was uh a great arena. The setup was definitely exciting. And um, for some of the show, some of the matches, I could really hear the crowd and some I couldn't hear it at all. And I and unfortunately, because I was using, you know, kind of um, uh, malicious and and terrible means of, of rewatching here, I can't totally judge. I wonder if it was louder on the Japanese commentary than it was on the U.S. commentary. Um, I also feel like the length of the show, obviously, the crowd is going to quiet down and it's going to be the Japanese qu- crowd that's going to be historically quiet and watching and studying at certain times. But um, some matches I thought were way hotter than other matches. And so when there was, you know, a Japanese wrestler in the ring, it seemed like there was oftentimes more crowd reaction than when it was just two uh, uh, Canadians or Americans. So uh, what was what was kind of a match that you really, really enjoyed? Uh, the Okada and Naito match was 35 minutes. The Omega Jericho match was 35 minutes. Um, I agree with some things that I've heard other people say. I don't know if they needed to be that long. Um, I think the Okada Naito match, which is the main event of this show, if I was thinking about it. Like th- this match probably had the highest expectations, or the highest of any match that, may, that there's ever been. Right, a Wrestle Kingdom main event in 2018. What match would have higher expectations than that? I can't think of one. 
the first like 20, 25 minutes of this match, I was watching it thinking, all right, they're doing all right. They're doing just well enough to, to meet the expectation. And then, then the last five minutes or so were incredible. Um, but again, and I feel like that that's the curve for a five-star match is that it's usually that idea that says, okay, this is pretty good. And then at some point you, you just feel it and you're like, wow, this is electric. This is really working. This is really good. Yeah. And it, it it is that kind of intangibleness where a lot of matches that have been really good. Like I remember that with feeling that with the, the Okada Omega match last year where it was good. And at a certain point, it you know, it was kind of moving on. And then it, then it kind of kicked into another gear and it just kind of felt like, oh, wow, yeah, I get this now. This is really cool. I like this even more. So so I mean I, I think that's you're you're absolutely right on that. Um the 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 lack of a title change in the main event was that a surprise to you? Yeah, I mean I I predicted Naito. I did a picks for Fightful actually. I think almost all of my picks were wrong. I picked Jay White to go over. I picked Naito to go over. I did pick Omega to go over though. Um we'll, we'll call you often wrong. You'll be like a uh, Dr. Soon. What did you think of this Omega Jericho spectacle? A no DQ match. Uh, for the IWGP heavyweight, or I'm sorry, the IWGP US title. I, I thought it was like similar, 35 minute match. The last five minutes of it were really good. There were parts of it throughout that were really good, and I don't know if it needed to be 35 minutes, but yeah. I was really torn on this match. I, I will just I'll just come out and say it. I like I referred to it as being better than the X Files uh, reboot or uh, uh, latest season, yeah. and people were like, "Well, that's not high praise," and I was like, "Yep." <laughs> And it wasn't because I don't think it was a good match. I think it was definitely a good match. I don't think it was a great, great match. And there's a lot of elements of that 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 kind of irked me. The first one being the no DQ element meant that there's a lot of shenanigans. And, you know, I, I'm sure it's a, a, a horse that everyone's beating here. But uh, the the referee abuse can just be so blatant and overdone. Mm-hmm. especially between matches that it's just frustrating to watch because there's little credibility, but yet there'll still be a rope break on a submission or something of that nature, which just feels weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's one um, of the big differences between WWE and new Japan is that this man for all the non-sports stuff that he wants, I feel all the, the non-sports feel that he wants to have for his product. He protects his referees better than this promotion does. Oh, absolutely. And, and so there's that Jericho is a tough figure for me because I feel like whatever he does, he justifies it by saying he's just playing the role of being a heel. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like his match, it's because he was a heel. If you don't like what he posts on Instagram, it's because he was a heel. If you don't like what he, uh, how he wrestles or how he looks, it's because he's a heel. And I feel if like you don't like lazy- his book, it's because he's a heel. Yeah, I feel like it's a lazy excuse, yeah. and it it lacks self awareness at times, and he, that has always been kind of his downfall here is that he has so much faith in himself that he at times doesn't seem to understand that you have to, in addition, kind of understand what the rest of the world is is saying and viewing through the lens that you are. And so he looked like an older wrestler working hard to have this kind of a match, but at the same time, I I didn't necessarily find him as credible as I think he thinks that he is in this kind of situation. In the sense, too, that, you know, he's talking a lot about, you know, being going to Japan and being a heel there, but it's like, I don't know if that's even the setting that is the right setting for an, a Canadian-American going to Japan on the 51st tour of his career or whatnot. And so it's just such a weird you know, juxtaposition. There was – you know, I was, I was pleased to see that some of the brutality was kind of tamped down. I was annoyed by Don Callis on commentary. Mm-hmm. I was 
absolutely baffled when I went on Twitter and just saw nothing but praise for Callus. Um, cause I find him to be the, the, the most effective Mark that has been in pro wrestling in 2017 that he's, you know, conned himself into a job with new Japan and with TNA. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just, I, I don't have great praise for it. I am, I'm confused at times by, you know, what's happening where the announcers are, are distracting from the, the ability of the match to get itself over by you know spending so much time talking about are they on are they not on are they you know trying trying to insert this realism but at the same time it, it becomes hyperbole sometimes the way callous will try to sell things and the fact that the chair shots are being used so ineffectively in my opinion where half the time it's a you know you, you threw a guy's head in the corner and the chair was lodged in the the turnbuckle and we're supposed to think that's a death punch and then the other half of the time you're literally hitting people on the head so hard that they, the top of the chair is popping out right I, and so, I think wrestling commentary in general I, in, throughout pro wrestling at least English commentary that's the only commentary that I understand um, I think there's just a, a, a philosophy and a, and a total norm across commentary to just oversell so hard that it takes at least me it takes me out of it just about every English-speaking commenta- commentary team that there is, they take me out of it because they're trying so hard to to do their job well. But what they do is they just shove it down your throat and, ma- and they try to make stuff that's not believable believable. And in doing so, they just – I think they totally damage their credibility. Yeah, and it's it's a character, right? It's it's like being a role in a play. And it's it's, as we say with wrestlers, the difference between playing a role and being the role. And a lot of guys are just following the script of – this is what a heel commentator would do at this point rather than here is what I would say is consistent with my beliefs about what's happening. Yeah. And one, one thing I can say about a lot of, you know, older commentary I used to enjoy is that sometimes guys would just stay silent yeah. where if, if a match, you know, if a, if a punch looked bad or something like that, you don't necessarily have to make an excuse for things, you know, glancing blow or whatever, just let it go, just move on. Right. And so I, I thought, I thought the match was too long. Um, I, I think because of where it was on the card and because of the interest on the card, I understand making it that long. My actual – of all things I can ever say, and this is really surprising to me that I thought this, was I was just like Jericho hulking up at the 32-minute mark or whatever it was to try to you know, kind of bring himself. He doesn't have that Triple H physique. He doesn't feel to me like that, that wrestler that's in peril in the same way. And I, I know that, you you know, being a looks guy is a bad thing. And I usually get really bored by long Triple H matches. But I just remember thinking, I don't feel the fire in Jericho at this point to get behind it. And plus, I don't understand why I would be getting behind it. I loved Omega. I thought Omega did a great job in the match. I thought Omega, you know, worked as well as he could with an opponent that was that age that he had never really worked with. And that their promos and the build and the feud was terrific. And they built it really well. And I'm really glad to see that. Jericho doesn't look like he's one and done, right? Like he ran in and beat up on Naito at the next uh, at the New Dash show, right? New Year's Dash. Jericho ran out and, and attacked Naito. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I like the fact that you know I think he's doing a good job and bringing it in there, and it's easy to to nitpick and kind of break it all down. Um, I just didn't feel like you know Jericho was as good. You know, you would read on Twitter people about how he was a masterful seller. And the storytelling was incredible. And I, I th- kind of thought, eh, you know, <laughs> it's it's a match that they're working here in this crowd with these people and these constraints. And I'm not 
hundred percent convinced that not a dozen other people in the world could have done that same thing. So yeah. I don't think it was masterful. Yeah, no, I think it's the way matter. the way Omega and Okada had such an athletic component to it that you could argue there's not a lot of people that would be able to hold up to that standard and that length and that regularity that they then produced for the rest of 2017. Yeah, I think um, Jericho becomes a star to people and then you you come to this viewing of this match with the idea that wow jericho is a star and then you watch his performance and you project upon to the performance this elevated perception of how great he is i i always go back to jericho being the first person that i can remember was put in the the wrestling observer hall of fame that i just completely didn't understand where i was just like there, there's a line in the sand of the guys that I'm like, these are the incredible performers. These are the guys that are hard workers that worked a lot of territories and got to be on top some. Mm-hmm. And that there's a very thin line between those two and Jericho never crossed that line for me. I think this would actually be the sort of thing that would put him over for me and make him into a, a star because I'd be able to say, yeah, he did headline Wrestle Kingdom 12 and he did draw buys and he did draw attention and, and he, he reinvented himself and now I get it. But I, I kind of feel like it was another one of these 10 years too soon sort of situations with him where, you know, this just proves that his career is not over. And so it's ridiculous to try to evaluate whether or not someone has a Hall of Fame career this early in their life. So I was much, much, much more impressed with the um, the Cody Abushi match. Cody Rhodes and Brandy Rhodes uh, really deserved – I just thought they were like – terrific heels in the in what they were doing and i know some people just thought he was a boring staller but uh i i didn't really find that and i thought that they coda was over so big i mean just listen to the difference between the crowd during a coda match and during omegas i was so impressed with how into the crowd uh koto abushi got them and then how how what a masterful seller koto abushi was really and and how they made you know just one or two simple moves you know like the the crossroads or the roll the dice on the floor be so big that, you know, that the crowd was so behind it. I, I thought it was a great spot. And uh, I, I really was impressed with everything that Coda was doing. Uh, he, he's such a star there. And he's so good. Yeah, I, I thought it was, I think other people have said, this is probably the best Cody match that there's ever been. Um, he had some nice touches. Like, uh, there's the spot where they do the dive and, and, and Brandy Rose gets hit too. But then, you know, they 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 trick Kota Ibushi into being concerned about her or whatever. But then great the, camera work so that we could see their facial expressions for that, you know, turn. Exactly. Like, and so there's this moment where he's, uh, you know, he's, he's laughing with Brandy Rhodes, Cody's laughing. And then he realizes, Oh, I got to rush back in the ring. And that was a nice touch, but there's a lot of times too, where I, where I feel Cody and this, I think this is maybe true for Jericho as well. There's, there's times where he's trying to be, He's trying to get himself over, and I and I get conscious of that, or like he's selling in a certain way that's supposed to make me feel like, wow, he's an amazing performer. But it just feels like he's selling to me. Oh, he he felt completely like a pro wrestling character, not a pro wrestler. He felt like someone who was playing the role of heel pro wrestling character at the Tokyo Dome. He didn't feel like a guy who I would actually say, hey, if I walked up to him, would he act like that on the street? No, he he looked he looked like he was being like, I'm an arrogant asshole from America, you know. And and so I thought that was really but I agree with you. It was the best Cody match. It was the most engaging thing. And um, I I think Brandy's great. I think, you know, there's such a, a strong role for that kind of character of the valet who's really pretty that, you know, New Japan can swoon over, like they say, like they used to do with Maria, but also has a little bit of that, you know, of the heel heel turn and the the 
ability to interfere in, in a fun way. Yeah. I mean, like, all this stuff was – a lot of this stuff, like you're talking about the Jericho and Omega match and all the interference in this match, a, a lot of the show was – you know, not a very traditional Japanese wrestling show, and it's not that much different from what New Japan does normally. But uh, I don't know. Like when I think of Japanese wrestling, I think of, and if and, and people talk about Japanese wrestling still today, like about how it's oh, it's it's much more serious and much more sports oriented. And if you compare it to just WWE, I guess it is. I like I this show as a whole. I sort of felt like was this is what American wrestling could be if it was done well, and almost nobody ever does it well. You know, just, you know, an, an, an event that's kind of sports-oriented, but they're doing a lot of interference and a lot of bullshit, and, and they're distracting the ref a lot, and they're doing goofy sells to the camera and stuff like that. Like, this was just a good American wrestling show to me, I thought. Yeah, and, and I think you bring up a great example there when you say, you know, people thinking about old-timey Japanese wrestling. And I just remember thinking, well, in 1996, Stan Hansen was 47 years old. Really? Um, he was with, that old in 96? Yeah. So wow. he, he was that old in 96. And I'd just be like... He won the Triple Crown in 95. Yeah. And wow. and that's kind of what I was thinking as I was like, well, well I'm getting annoyed with with Jericho here because I'm, I'm looking at him and I don't feel like he's got that aura about him of that tough guy wrestler in, in his, you know, at post-prime that's fighting up. And I began thinking, well, what would a Stan Hansen wow. or something or, or Steve Williams or whatever look like in this time? And I was like... They feel so much different, you know, like there's so many examples of them in Japan at that age killing it. And yeah, you know, when he had that crazy match with um, uh, Andre, he was probably only 32 or 33 at the time. But, um, you know, I, I just think th there's a lot to say about, you know, these older guys, the Yuji Nagatas or the Ultima Guerreros or, or these other guys that are out there around that same age who are still killing it. And incredibly talented and and jericho's in their midst but i wouldn't say that he is the greatest of that age group and at this time um so it, it was just one of those where i just remember thinking wow he doesn't have that grizzled vet credibility he has that five foot seven grizzled vet credibility of you know what you see in upstate new york as the you know it, it just doesn't have that same kind of i don't know that it just doesn't feel exactly the same and again it, it was to me things like you know it's big to Don Callis, Kenny Omega, and Chris Jericho that they're all from Winnipeg, but it doesn't really play on the worldwide scene the same way, and I don't think they understand that. It's like a the local sports team sucks, but uh, you got a nationwide audience watching. Yeah, it, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I'm sure that's a big deal to the Canadian there, but I don't think you understand that if it's in Japan, everybody's a non-Japanese, and that that's what's big to them. You know, it, it's just odd. So. Uh, I really, really, really like that four-way. The Will Ospreay uh, and the, the Skrull, uh, Kushida, and, and Takahashi match. That was just, you know, it was a sprint. It was a spectacle. But to me, it's like that's the kind of wrestling I really love is is full of high spots. But what I really enjoyed is, you know, Marty Skrull carried himself like a pro. And they told fun story with the match so that it wasn't, you know, overwhelming. And it, it built an intensity. And I think it went maybe a smidge too long because there was, you know, one one or two points where I was like, oh, this is it. This is right when we can climax and finish. And then we still did two or three more kickouts. But I was so much more into this match and the crowd was so hot. And, yeah, if you're going to do a moonsault off a lighting rig, you're going to get the crowd hot. But there was so much more they're able to do. And I just compare it to something like the the mess that was that triple mania match where, uh, you know, it was Ariel Star or whatever, did a, a plunge off the lighting rig. Right. And the rest of that match was such a debacle. 
But, you know, this was a match where I would be like, this was a great match. This would be the match I would show to someone to be like, this is why I like pro wrestling. Because I had I my, my buddies on, on our group chat were like, oh, I'm going to watch o- Omega Okada. So they watch it and they're like, yeah, I don't think I really care about wrestling anymore. I'm sorry, not Omega Okada, Omega uh, Jericho. Hmm. Like, I don't care about wrestling again. I'll, I'll tune in at the Rumble. And I was like, watch the four-way. Watch the four-way. Because I, I, there's that element of just, you know, they're, they're different styles. They're different moves. They're different combinations that I thought were really exciting. And, you know, this was the one moment when I was like, I get why people were raving about the British scene. Because if this was your indie fed where these guys were doing this kind of level of work, it would be really exciting. Um, and then tell me a little bit about the Tanahashi uh, Jay White match because this was an interesting experiment in them to try to take someone, send him away, repackage yeah. him, bring him back, and put him in with you know arguably their number three star. Right. Uh, I, a lot of people were expecting well, Jay White should just come out and like beat him in five minutes or ten minutes or something like that. Um, but Tanahashi went over, and that was a big surprise. Uh, if you, I, I think that a lot of people thought, well, Tanahashi's really injured. He's got to go away now for a while. I don't think Tanahashi's going anywhere. I don't know to what degree he's really hurt. I'm sure he's really hurt to some degree, but I don't believe that he's as hurt as everybody is panicking that he is. You know, oh, after every big match that Tanahashi has, everybody, whoa, oh man, he's so hurt. Oh, he's going to hurt himself. He's going to end his career. He, I don't know. He's, he's being Tanahashi, and I think to some degree he's selling. And to some degree. I, I, I would have felt that way for a long time until Masawa died in the ring. That's true. You know, that, that was one where it was where, like everyone was like, this guy's really beat up. He's not well. And then he dies in the ring and you're just like, oh, my God, you know, in or Hayabusa gets paralyzed in the ring and it's freak accident. I yeah. totally get that. But at the same time, I don't, I don't think Masala was a freak accident. I think Masala well, was no, a trick. No, but, and same with with Hayabusa to a degree, because yeah. the guy beat his body down quite a lot during right. that whole period. So it, to say, yes, when you land in that way, it's really, really, really bad. But it also says something that, you know, I think, you know, people do land like that and they recover because sometimes they haven't necessarily put their body through that same amount of stress. Well, I think what happened to Hayabusa, I think if that was his first match, he would have gotten just as injured if it was his whatever number match that was for him. It's hard to, you know, it's it's impossible to know for sure. Yeah. But just, you know, with Takayama and Shibata and all these other people who have kind of worked themselves really into the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, it, it makes you nervous sometimes when, when guys are like that. And I know all it is is secondhand information, so it's really hard for any of us to judge because that's like, that's like when you have the neuroscientist who says, I'm going to uh, diagnose whether or not Donald Trump has a, a deficiency by watching, you know, televised speeches. Well, you're you're using very secondary edited things to try to understand your take on things, and oftentimes you're selling it to an audience that wants a certain story. So I, I am very dubious with you that we know Tanahashi's condition and you know that that there's a doctor there that doesn't say, Hey, you're really messed up. Now it sounds more like he's having arm injuries than he's having neck injuries, so there's that element as well. Yeah. So anyway, that about the finish though. I don't know. I, I, I feel like Jay White probably wouldn't have been in this spot if uh, Shibata didn't get hurt. I think this is a Shibata-Tanahashi match, probably with Shibata going over. If if not, and I think the idea was, well, we need some, something in place of this. All right, well, we're bringing Jay White back. Let's put Jay White in there and see what he does. And uh, pr- probably not with the idea to put him over. But when, when all of us looked at this card, we probably thought, okay, Jay White's coming back, and Tanahashi's role is to put people over here. He's getting old, and he's hurt, and he's, he's going to put Jay White over here. Well, we, we, we've seen that with the Japanese style, though, too, though. Sometimes when you come back, you know, you do lose because you're not as, as grizzled. 
as the veteran. Absolutely. And, and, and even watching the match, I would say uh, the performance wasn't a blow-away performance. This gimmick, I don't know if Jay White gets this gimmick or not, or at least I don't get what he's performing, and it doesn't connect deeply with me. He, he wins a Corgan All in New Year's Dash the next day, and he, he does the Sister Abigail, and he like you know embraces you know, the guy's head afterward and everything. And just it felt to me like, you know, I could have been watching a, a, a U.S. indie, you know, a local U.S. indie, because like okay, he's just doing sort of some some Bray Wyatt stuff here. He's got some colored hair. It doesn't feel like a mature gimmick, and uh, I, I don't think he did himself many favors. It was a, it was a big pressure moment, and to see if he's going to be a guy who's going to be kind of in the main event or at least in the Intercontinental Title picture for New Japan. And uh, I don't think he knocked it out of the park. He needed a, a big, great performance, and he didn't have one. And so my point is, seeing the seeing the performance that he had doesn't make me feel as much like, oh, man, he really should have gone over. Um, and he, maybe even if he had a great performance, he might have been still benefited from losing. Um, it sounds like I'm just defending Go- Gato here for a questionable booking decision. but Well, I, I think that's – I think the element, though, is that Gato, you know, if for all his pros, it does have misses. And that's not uncommon for any booker that, you know, it's it's success in spite of your flaws. And so you can go back to New Japan in the U.S. and look at Tanahashi versus Billy Gunn and say, that's not what the people wanted. Everyone told you that's not what the people wanted, and yet you did not yeah. relent. Yeah. And I do think that there's an element, too, where the Japanese fans might have some concern that their company is being overrun by, by Gaijin, where you know some of these big Japanese stars are continuing to you know seem like they're losing their, their spots to – the Omegas or the Jay Whites or the Jerichos. And so um, there, there's that element, too, where you, you do need for your domestic market to keep some strength on your your, your homegrown stars. Yeah. And so I, I can understand also with this looking at, you know, who's winning here in these different matches where you have, you know, um, uh, Will Osprey winning and you have the Young Bucks winning and you have an Omega Jericho match that you might want to also make sure that one of your very big aces still gets a big win yeah you don't want to alienate the fans that make up your base um which which is it's the jinder mahal argument right that we say well if wwe's audience is 75 to 80 percent in north america um with the second largest audience being in the uk you can do things in a certain direction but to book for the five percent of your market or two percent of your market that you want to grow into you you do risk a lot there's all those indian youtube viewers yeah, exactly. Um, and that's why Kavita Devi is going to win the Royal Rumble. That's right. But just on Tanahashi, I think when beating Tanahashi has a certain value to it. You know, you can only, you can beat Tanahashi over and over again, and eventually that's going to have a, a diminishing return, right? So you should even I think Tanahashi's role absolutely should be to build up new stars and to help other people become bigger stars and to nurture their star power. But you still have to spend that judiciously so the the jay white that i saw at wrestle kingdom i don't think it's it's wise to spend that law that 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 tanahashi loss on him yet at that moment at least it's like the undertaker when they when they would used to be very very selective about who would beat the undertaker and then next thing you know kozlov is the guy doing it and you're like "Eh, maybe that investment wasn't worth it but no, I hear what you're saying. I think I think it makes sense. It's a great show. I thought it was a, a, a show worth watching. Um, it inspired me to order New Japan World um, in my mind. <laughs> you, you ordered New Japan World. Just real quick too about the uh, the main event. Um, 
and even the Jay White match and uh, with Tanahashi as well, where the the booking decisions were not predictable. And I think the thing about New Japan, I and mean, this is a similarity across a lot of Japanese wrestling tradition, traditionally as far as the booking goes, and that the the matches that are the smaller matches, the matches that aren't as big of a deal, you can often predict who's going to win. Or you know they do all these tag matches, and you can often predict who's going to take the fall, who's going to get the fall. But on the bigger scale, when it comes to this event, this event's the main event, Okada and Naito. Uh, a couple of years ago, Tanahashi and Okada, where everybody thought Okada was going to go over. Or even the 2015 G1 Climax with uh, Nakamura and Tanahashi. Everybody figured, well, Nakamura is going to go over, and Tanahashi went over. So the, the point is, I think, on the small scale, Ghetto's booking is very predictable. But on a larger scale, it's not very predictable. He does things that are counterintuitive to what you expect him to do. And, um, but he pl- and like plays every, it out. He exactly. plays it out to the finish line, which is usually nice. Exactly. I mean, There's a lot of long-term booking, apparently, in this promotion. And if anybody deserves the benefit of the doubt, I think Joel Lanza said this, but I think if, if anybody deserves the benefit of the doubt, it, it's Gato. If anybody has earned goodwill, it's Gato. I think this is different. I don't know if people want to hear WWE and New Japan comparisons, but it's different from WWE. When WWE does something that's really questionable and really suspect, they haven't earned the benefit of the doubt. They haven't earned the goodwill to say, all right, this maybe we'll see how this plays out. Maybe it'll make sense later. And then this is related to economics, too, because you want to cultivate stars that build your brand up and, and draw money with them. But you don't have the faith in WWE because we've, we've, we've given them the benefit of the doubt a number of times. Or if you're a new fan, you've given them the benefit of the doubt. And then you find out that they're not going to you know, pay off what, what you think they're going to build up here. But Gato probably will. Absolutely. So... Good, good point. I also about. thought it was really weird in the Naito Okada match. Um, I think Kevin Kelly did a, did a pretty good job overall. I wasn't so hot on, on Don Kells. I, I agree with you there. Uh, Kevin Kelly appears to have a, a genuine passion for New Japan. It, it sounds like, based on some of the references that he's made, that he's gone back and he's studied the last couple of years of New Japan pretty well. Um, huge plug for the Voice of Wrestling ebook. Ah, you cut me off before I could do it. Yes, exactly. New Japan. In review, ebook 2017 by the Voices of Wrestling crew. Go to voicesofwrestling.com. You can get a click, a link to the pay hip where you get to decide the price. You want to pay nothing? You can pay nothing. You want to pay negative $1? You want to take a dollar out of our pocket? You cannot do that, but you should be able to because that's how open this economic experiment is. You can also go to Amazon and get a copy of the ebook. If you go to the pay hip version, you're going to get a uh, .mobi or a .epub file which is useful for your reader mm-hmm. but um there's a forward in that written by mr kevin kelly yeah there's commentary by joe lanza by rich Krejci, by statistics by chris mukigana harrington mm-hmm. of all people um what else is in that book i know you were you were combing through it recently weren't you oh there's a good essay about the uh, okada and shibata this is the match where shibata gets, gets hurt um by one of our listeners suplex barry sandra barry i think um mm. And uh, but the the, the plug, I, I watched it on Japanese commentary live, and then I like I said I rewatched some of this stuff with the English commentary, and I heard that he be plugged Voices of Wrestling and he plugged the ebook, but it was quite lengthy plug. It was almost as long as the plug that you just gave for it. Um, really? Oh wow, well, that's exciting. I'm glad to hear um, that. Um, not because I, I I receive a small residual from that. Yeah. But I, but Kevin Kelly showed that he knew what he was talking about at other times, like where in the Jericho match where he pulls Red Shoes Uno's 
son, who's a young boy, and puts him in the walls of Jericho. He was well aware immediately of what was going on there, yeah. which I think a lot of people would not have caught. Um, maybe if Jim Ross was doing this show, Jim Ross might not have caught that. Um, well, and it also speaks to the importance of being there live. Because you can watch something all you want, but you're not going to meet those people. You're not going to talk to them. You're not going to be able to interface with them in a way that live at an event, you're going to say, oh, I know this about this person. I, I recognize that person from here and so forth. Right. Um, but I think early in the match, they're, they're hyping it up, right? And this is another one of the things that I'm talking about. I was like, they're, they're hyping it up. They're trying to do such a great job. And they're putting over. They, they start talking about Meltzer and they start talking about star ratings and everything. This is before the bells rang. Um, talking about five stars and six stars and all this stuff and they're talking about the betting lines on the, on the star rating which there legitimately is right there's, there's a betting line on whether or not this match is going to get five stars or not that was the over under they pointed out and I'm, uh, I'm very torn on this legitimacy of the star rating um betting lines like I, I would be very curious to see which websites are actually doing this someone asked us to talk about this on the show so this they? is probably a good segue um why, a, why do they do this? Well, B, the, the main reason is because it drives traffic to their site, right? There's a lot of things. It drives traffic to whose site? To the gambling site. Okay. There's a lot of things in this okay. world that are loss leaders. And so in, in retail all the time, people sell loss leaders, which are things that you're selling below cost or at cost mm-hmm. for the purpose of getting that body in the store because they're very likely to then do a basket builder and, or a treasure hunt or whatever the other terms you want to use in consulting are which is you're going out there and you're finding something else and you're adding more. Because very few people are going to bother driving to a store, buy only the loss leader, and then leave, unless you're Brandon Howard Thurston. Right. And you, you have incredible uh, vegan dedication to will. what you are will of willpower. That's right. Um, but, but most people, they're not. And so that, that's the main reason I think they're doing this is because then Dave Meltzer talks about it, and then you and I talk about it, and then so-and-so goes on that website. And then you're not going to just bet on the star rating match. You're going to bet on 10 other things. And then you're not going to necessarily take the money nice. out. You're going you're gonna to set up an account with them, and then you're going to be getting emails from them. And then you're going to be having a bank account with them where you're going to be putting money in and taking it out. And then you've established basically a line with them. And so it, it's, it's the sort of thing where it's a foot in the door. Yeah. And that's that's the main reason you're doing it, is just to differentiate yourself competition. And yeah, they probably do take a bath on some of this stuff, but that's okay because compared to the actual site and what it's making, it's pennies on the dollar. It's advertising money to them. It, it's meaningless to them whether or not they make money on wrestling, um, star rating betting, and possibly wrestling as a whole. They probably barely make any money on it, period, anyways. But it's all the other sports that those people are likely to go out and bet on. That makes all their money. I mean, when you the, the number one sport for betting is is football, as in soccer, and there is tens of thousands of thing of of these games that are going on where you can literally bet on like U sixteen games in Uzbekistan, and that's why there's so much corruption and and uh, there's so much like like triad fixing and and all this other stuff that's going on with the, these kind of sports figures, and so the idea that people get upset that you can bet on wrestling when there's worked soccer matches all over the world. Uh, is is hilarious to me. There's work but, soccer um, matches all over the world. Oh yeah, I, I, this is one of my favorite sports conspiracy theories. Really? There's there's ton- Oh yeah, I, I'll send you some links from ESPN and other things. Yeah, there's been lots of people. We're gonna have to there's start a, another podcast. It, it's not. I mean, to call it worked, it's it's more like uh, if I were to say if you were were running a race and then you were, you wanted to lose, could you lose? Yeah. Now, if you're playing on a team, can you help that team not do so well? Possibly, especially if you're in a key position. Now, is it, are you working the whole thing or are you just not trying as hard as you could? 
Do you maybe have some money to be paid to not try as hard as you could? So there's like some, even, some shoeless Joe Jackson stuff going on. A lot of times, yeah, with the keeper or something where, you know, the, oh, I can't believe they let that goal in or wow. like own goals that are, you know, there's been games that have been suspended because there's been such fishy own goals that have wow. happened. Um, and again, a lot of times what it is is when you're going to these really remote countries. I mean, the, probably my favorite example of all, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't ranted about this before. Uh, my favorite example of all was where one fixer literally invented a soccer team and flew it to another country to play a game. Like, I think it was the, the Togo national soccer team playing in like Saudi Arabia or UAE or something or Bahrain, I think it was. Mm. And later the Togo people were like, we didn't go and play a game. there. <laughs> the guy just like made up a fake team to send over. Just so you could bet. I mean, a lot of these sports games are almost existing for the purposes of being able to bet on them and then fix the lines. Yeah. It's it's incredible. So it, that's my rant about gambling, which is the idea that wrestling somehow is going to break this ecosystem you know, is hilarious. I, I, I've, I've placed bets on wrestling on uh, five dimes. I don't know if I'm violating ethics, ethics codes to say this. But, like, but I mean, you haven't seen like the star ratings part that everyone – No, I've never know, bet on that. The loves talking about this part and I'm always like, where is he getting this information from that this is so prevalent? Because I've well, never I think it's on Patty Power or something. But yeah, yeah. I've made a number of bets on – like there'll be pay-per-view matches that I think are just so certain, oh, so-and-so is definitely going to go over. And I've never lost one yet. I've been doing this for like three or four years, and I've turned $250 into $827.95. Now, have you have you actually successfully extracted that money? I have not. No, I have not liquidated it. I have not. And that's that's the other reason that they do stuff like this is because you, you can take a bath on it, but yeah. you know ultimately you know how much money they're out? Zero dollars because the 250 you gave them, right. and they haven't had to pay you a penny. Right. I will never lose, though. Someday I will. Uh, I will never lose, says Brandon. I will never lose. But anyway, the point I was trying to make was that um, I think it's a, it takes me out of it. It, it, it disrupts. Sure. It is what I tell my students. I, it disrupts my suspension of disbelief for you to talk about. It's like talking about. I don't know if this is the perfect analogy, but, it, the, but there's some similarities here. It, it'd be like watching a movie that's supposed to be a really great movie. But like all of a sudden, you know, the, the actors turn to the camera and say, hey, this is going to win the Oscar. It's going to be really There's good. a big difference between the reviewer saying that this is a Golden Globes worthy performance after the fact versus encapsulating it into the show where right before the movie plays on TV, a talking head pops up and says, by the way, this film deserves a nomination yeah. because it is going to be amazing. And people think that his performance is probably going to be incredible. Right. But but that commentator doesn't live in the universe that the movie lives in. Kevin Kelly and Don Callis live in the universe that Okada and Naito live in where this match is real. Now, now, the contrary argument will be, okay, you're going to go to the Super Bowl. You're going to have talking heads there that are going to say, this team is awesome. They're going to do great, and I bet you they're going to kill them. And this team is terrible, and they're going to be awful, and people are predicting such and such. Mm -hmm. And so they would argue it's coming from the sports commentary area where they're saying it's going to be like such. But because they, it's a worked match, they can't talk about who's going to win and lose. Instead, they talk about how good the match is going to be. I don't know. What's your point? What are you saying? I'm saying that's why they think that it's okay to do. I think the argument would be it's not okay to do because it's just like you like you point out here, um, being a good performer means you still lose, and if if the the uh, the winner's purse matters, then you're you're not feeding your okay. family. I, I think it's okay to hype that Okada versus Naito is going to be a great match, even entertainment wise or artistically. Like you're going to consume it; it's going to be a great match. But I think. Once you, I don't know, once you start talking about like star ratings, I feel like a star rating is a is a critical response to a work of art, you know, rather than 
I can talk about how a football game, wow, these these two teams are really evenly matched and it's going to be a it's going to be a great match. Or I can talk about a UFC fight where like, you know, Nate Diaz and, and Conor McGregor just the way that they fight, it's probably going to be a really great fight or something like that. You know, but to but to talk about a star rating, I think it's something different. It's because the star rating the the star rating that Dave picks or that I pick or that anybody picks is picked based on s- some nebulous you know, artistic criteria. Right? Oh well, we might have we might have some people who uh, will argue with you that there's some artistic constructs or some uh, specific linguistic constructs that allow us to predict what uh, a Dave Meltzer star rating would be. That's right. There might even be and, some machine learning. Yeah. So there's but all there's, but all that's but be, but even that the language is just the side effect. You yeah. Know. I I found that time and place on the card oftentimes are great predictors for what the star rating is going to be. Yeah. Where you you can kind of make the argument that there's no such thing as a five star match under ten minutes, yeah. and you can make the argument that there's no such thing as a five star match that takes seventy five minutes. Though there are always are exceptions, but usually it's like you know forty thirty seven minutes or something is like the the perfect amount of time. And so I remember someone was was sharing a group chat that uh not a group chat but an article that was quoting like how delirious sometimes would like make graphs and charts and show them to Joe Coff and ROH. And so I almost kind of feel like really? if I was a booker, that's what I would be doing, would be yeah. saying, well, you know, optimally, if we put it in this position, this would be the length of time that we would find to have the greatest opportunity for it to excel in its star rating potential. Delirious is doing charts and graphs and showing them to joke off. Oh, there was a quote from uh, Mr. Lavi. I'll have to find it uh, a little bit later here. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the business then. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with you on the star ratings, which is it takes you out of that universe. But uh, the universe you and I play in is WrestleNomics, which is the economics and machinations legally of business of professional wrestling and other related uh, evolution of media. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had made some predictions about attendance. Um, the attendance number that has been quoted is 34995. Uh, yeah. Very specific number. You I know. believe that's a paid number. Yeah. A hair under 35,000. So five people got the flu, could not come. Mm-hmm. And Zomori couldn't make it. Yeah, but you said Kevin Kelly on commentary used the forty thousand plus. Kevin Kelly on commentary said with with comps and sponsors. He specifically said that. I, I, I think he says there's more than forty thousand here. Uh, that that morning, our time, uh, Observer F4W site. I think this is a Josh Nason post. He says there's about forty three thousand total. So that implies about eight thousand comps. Wow. Does that sound believable to you? 8,000 comps? You know... Uh, it's like, like a it, fifth of the audience. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of extra bodies in the, the thing there. I mean, we've definitely seen like WrestleMania where the numbers been very, very different, right? Well, I'm... You know, well, that, that, well, that's the WrestleMania hot dog seller... That's a Bruce Pritchard hot dog seller number exactly. there. Then, right? the, the WrestleMania you know? 32, 101,000. How do you get to 101,000 from like 80,000 paid? 20,000 comps? Well, there, there's that element in the Japanese society about the, the weird ticket seller situation where you do have kind of the people that buy it and then resell the tickets. And then I don't know if there's other relationships in the Tokyo Dome where they have sponsors or things like that where you just get tickets on top of that. And so they're trying to argue that, you know, the Ukes staff or whoever owns um, – I'm sorry, not Bushi Road yeah. staff that uh, owns New Japan that they give out, you know, a 1,000 tickets to the people, to friends and friends. And, and those are not paid attendance. I suppose, but um, but you, you, it's a high number. I'm with you that that's an exceptionally high number to try and and um, 
uh, uh, estimate as a comp there in the building unless literally you're including all the staff, all the production people, all the wrestlers, all the the uh, the the sushi sellers or or I don't know what 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 hot snacks they have in Japan. Yeah. Um, uh, but and it just gives you the idea of the dark room that, you, that, you, that you're in when you're trying to deal with. What's the real attendance? Like, well, I, I don't think we have a great idea. I think Matt Farmer and Bix were talking about this on Twitter the other day that I don't know that we even have a great idea of, like, what's the real capacity for a wrestling show at the Tokyo Dome? I know you go back to, like, the 90s and stuff for New Japan and even All Japan were always announcing 60,000. The Inoki Retirement Show, they announced 70,000. Like, how many people really fit in this building? Like, we, I don't, I don't have a great idea. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing here because my dog just came in the room. Went in the trash, grabbed an ID card, like one of those benefit ID cards you get with the dental information on it. Yeah. Out of the trash and then ran out of the room. Wow. So uh, wow. I think she's worried about Obamacare or something. Well, she, she's got some, some dental uh, work to get done. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. Uh, what about the 2,000 people that are supposedly coming from the Europe and U.S.? I know I saw a few camera shots during a couple of the matches where they you know, would have a whole row of foreigners mm-hmm. uh, sitting together wearing Bullet Club shirts or, mm-hmm. or uh, other things. Uh Sounds like very plausible. The world is getting smaller. You know, they were saying how that even at the spot shows for New Japan, you know, or for other wrestling shows that there was, you know, 100, you know, plus foreigners hanging out there. We should mention, too, this 35,000, Yuji Nagata, who's a a budding uh, wrestling reporter, uh, claimed that there's there's 32,600 uh, that he said this the day before the show, so that would imply so thirty two thousand six hundred. If you subtract thirty five thousand from thirty two thousand six hundred, that's about twenty five hundred walk up. Nagata strikes me as the type of guy that might even work in the office for New Japan. I'd be I'd be interested, you know. Yeah, you um, so he he would seem like the sort of guy that might have access to that actual number and information. Did yeah. he claim this on Twitter or was this a a translated tweet? He claimed this on Twitter. Yeah. Wow. Nagata seven sixty nine. Wow. What do you think? It, why do you think it's Nagata seven sixty nine? Is that his month and year of birth? Maybe. Perhaps. It will have a lot of people misunderstanding me flying. Said the troubled laughter. New Japan four Tokyo Dome advance thirty two six hundred sheet over that Yuji Nagata announces thanks Daily Sport headlines. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Nagata san. Um. But, and then Dave also said that uh, we were just alluding to that about 2,000 people from Europe or America attended the show, he said. I don't know if that was something that was said earlier on the broadcast or if that's a, that's a Dave news tidbit. tidbit. Um, and that's what I he said, and he, I believe that. Like, I, I would guess it was something like, you know, he texted Kevin Kelly and said, yeah. can you approximate how many people are here from, you know, who are non-Japanese? And he said, oh, there's got to be at least 2,000. I'm, I'm guessing it's something more like that. Um, which I I do buy, you know, like considering how many people travel for WrestleMania from around the world, yeah. the idea that hardcore wrestling fans aren't going to want to go to Japan. Um, we, we talked about on the show what a fool they were for not, you know, making it easier for travel packages for, for American fans because there's right. such an interest in this that, culture. I'm not, I'm not clear on. Weren't there travel package, packages? Didn't we talk about how we found them? There were. There were. But what I was saying is they weren't necessarily really – great travel packages as much as they were we'll get you a hotel and here's a ticket we'll get you it didn't feel as much as like you know what the wrestlemania deal is where they're really going all out and they're coordinating everything as much as it's more like here's a travel agency we've agreed to work with that will that we've already set aside 100 tickets for mm-hmm. and we're going to sell sell those tickets to you okay. and i think that was frustrating for a lot of fans that you know you weren't necessarily getting great tickets versus like the wrestlemania one you could argue that's about the only way you can get great tickets is to pay the big, big, big price and go with the travel package. 
Okay. And I, don't, I guess that, that doesn't include, like, a TakeOver or New Year's Dash when they sell these travel packages, either New Japan or WWE, huh? I think one of them at least had tried to do one where it was going to be for more than one show. But it's it's a it's a it seems like the sort of thing where they're hesitant to get involved because it's new and different to them and has some risk. And so yeah. they, they put their toe in the water rather than actually being like, we can do this right. Yeah. And so I'm sure it was great. And I'm glad that they're doing it. And it's the right thing to do. I would love to go to Japan and watch a show, a big show, because my wife just went last year for law school, had a great time. I have friends that live there. I have, you know, there's, there's cool things happening. I would love to go there. It'd be a great experience for me. And wrestling would be a part of that experience. So I'm, I'm all about it. If, if, um, if there's another big round of this and it's just a matter of, you know, kind of planning your life. You want to go to Budokan in, uh, in August? It's a possibility. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute, maybe. Uh, the attendance, though, what else is there to say about it? Uh, Okada oh, we predicted. We predicted. Oh, we had predictions uh, here. Yeah, and I had predicted thirty, thirty-two thousand and one. Yeah. So by the the rules of the, Price is Right, yeah. I have won. Yep. But um, we were both under. I think we both yeah. thought we we're being you know aggressive, and it's uh, not even aggressive enough. So thirty-five thousand up from would you suggest last year was only twenty-six thousand? The year before that, twenty-five thousand. So a good gain of almost eight thousand people. Yeah. Um. Almost, 9, yeah, about, about 9,000. Uh, Okada says after the, the main event that he sees some empty seats here, but don't worry, the Rainmaker will fill them. He says something to that effect. So there's a, you know, there's an economic awareness in, in the in the promos, which we kind of heard that from Kenny Omega, too, at the end of the Long Beach show uh, in July. It, it gives me a lot of hope that if you can get 2,000 people to travel overseas yeah. to watch your show, that filling a 10,000-seat arena in the U.S. for New Japan. I'm not even talking about the Bullet Club plan right, here. Right. But for New Japan, I think you strike while the iron's hot, and I think there's a great opportunity for that now. Yeah, if you do the right time in the right city, for sure, with the right card. Yeah. Uh, what about New Japan World subscribers? They went from, according to Meltzer, they went from 70,000 to 90,000, and that would be up from 60,000 after Wrestle Kingdom last year. And and specifically, Kevin Kelly even made a mention that there was tens of thousands of new subscribers. I heard him yes. say this when I listened to the the match yeah. um, for New Japan World. And when we say it was at sixty thousand on January fifth, twenty seventeen, we also know that the numbers probably decreased throughout the year, where they were at sixty thousand for a high, and they probably went down as the year went on to maybe back down to uh, you know forty or fifty thousand, then probably started creeping back up again. I, w- I would think it went back up. During G1 climax, we don't know any of this stuff, but I would I would expect it went down after Wrestle Kingdom, sort of like it, like the network subscriber number goes down after WrestleMania, and I would think it probably went back up around G1 climax and maybe back down again and then back up again. Yeah, but anyway, according to, to Dave, they're at ninety thousand now, which is if you look at our predictions, it was right on my prediction. Yeah, I said eighty-seven six fifty-four, which is yeah. the real number, and you said ninety thousand, which I guess is the gonna, works yeah. rounded number. Yeah, um, you could be completely right there. Yeah, no, but it's it's a. Uh, I think we were both in the same ballpark, which is we were thinking it was going to increase by maybe about twenty thousand over that baseline, or maybe thirty fifty percent higher than the year before. Um, we both feel that you know that that I think one thing Dave mentioned, which I think is important, is that he admitted that New Japan has been underwhelmed by New Japan World's adoption rate. They didn't think they were going to have a problem getting 100,000 subscribers in their first year. Mm-hmm. And now they're several years in and they still have not hit 100,000. 
And I think furthermore, they're probably very impressed that they actually have a much larger penetration in the US and in Europe than they expected where, you know, something like, what is it, a uh, a fourth, a third, somewhere between there is is international subs to this Japanese service. Which Last course, year is about a quarter. So what's, what's 15,500 divided by 44,500 uh, last year? But yes, it's about 26%. But, and I would argue that maybe this year, instead of it, you know, 26% of 90,000 is 23,000, which would only suggest that they've increased by about 8,000 versus last year. I would think, if anything, you know, of that 90,000, a larger proportion of the game came from international fans. With, with Jericho on the show, yeah. Yeah. So I would guess that maybe that 15,500 number might even double to 30,000. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about then 60,000. So you've increased maybe 15,000 fans for Japan and then you've increased about 15,000 fans for the U.S. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was almost evenly split between internet. Well, I say U.S., but I mean international, non-Japanese, because um, I, I do think Europe plays a huge role in this, especially with the fact that it's much more convenient for them on a time uh, table situation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Canada, uh, Australia, maybe New Zealand. Yeah. And Canada and Australia, New Zealand, which, you know, you can see so much new talent that they're developing from that area of the world. That's got to be helping them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and, and by the way, you can, if you want a written and visual version of what we're talking about here, you can read my article on Fightful.com about the all the uh, post-Wrestle Kingdom 12 business update uh, that, that just got published uh, yesterday, Friday. It turns out it actually was Friday, not Thursday. But uh, I think uh, so. When you, when, you, when I tweet about this stuff, I get a lot of people saying, "Yeah, Jericho, oh, that that's all because of Jericho." Um, and I think the attendance, maybe not so much. I think if you look at that two thousand number, though, if, if that's a, a, if that's true, I think a lot of that credit can go to Jericho as far as getting people to get in, into airplanes and travel across across the globe and attend this show. Some of that goes to Jericho, but I think a lot of the attendance credit goes to. You mean a lot of the subscriber growth? Oh, no, I'm, I'm getting to the no. Hang on. Uh, okay. I think a lot of the attendance credit though goes to I don't know the brand overall and the and the, the normal main eventers like Okada, Naito, Tanahashi, Omega, and Omega, and, yeah. and Omega, yeah, yeah. I think Omega is a third or fourth, but yeah, but and uh, but the the New Japan World subscriber number, I think more of that credit you can give to Jericho, uh, getting people to try this service maybe who haven't yet. And I think whatever the real potential is for New Japan World's subscriber number, I think it has a huge untapped potential, especially with English-speaking people. Uh, just because, yeah, I mean, we're talking about it right now. You, you didn't even watch this on New Japan World, right? No. And you don't get much more hardcore than doing a, a three-hour podcast on the business of wrestling. I think that this that service is so inaccessible and so intimidating to people. Like I, I had a friend text me. This is a guy who who owns a a Bullet Club. Uh, he owns one of those Bone Soldier hoodies to give give you an idea of how big of a wrestling fan he is. He's never subscribed to NGPW World. He's, he texted me yesterday saying, "Hey, that uh that New Japan Network does that work like the WWE Network in that you can just watch the event afterward?" And it's like, yeah. And um, and let's also think about the dollar price. So let's say they're doing ninety thousand dollars. Or 90,000 subscribers. So that's $900,000 of income. But you're only looking at maybe an incremental $300,000 of income for that one month. Yeah. So in order to pay off, because you've got to imagine Jericho made a pretty penny for his match here. Easily a quarter million dollars, probably more. I think so. Is, wow. is my guess. Wow. 
Okay. Well, I, I think for him to to you know really decide to do all of this, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of money. And so at first I was like, oh, he should he should ask for you know ten percent cut of all the incremental New Japan subs. And now I started doing the math. I was like, oh, that'd be a terrible deal for him. He would be making nothing. Yeah. So I got I got to believe that you know Jericho made six figures um, on this deal. You know, maybe two fifty is too high, but you know a lot. And so it's it's possible that you know the incremental sub and the incremental attendance barely is covering it. Yeah. But the hope is you're going to hook these people and get them for six months and then get them in other ways. You know, when you go to live events in the U.S., you're going to have a lot better targeting and information and a network to get that information out. And, and the gate, by the way, had to be I, I, I wrote in the multiple millions um, just based on like even if 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 you multiply like the the lowest ticket price times thirty five thousand, even then you're you're at like you're almost at two million. And obviously there are tickets that were really expensive for this show. So I, I would think, you know, a few to several million, certainly under 10 million, I would think. But uh, yeah, I, and and the last piece people have made is that I think it's it's really incredible that New Japan can draw 2000 people from around the world to come and watch their show. And as as others have noted on Twitter, uh, it's tough for TNA to do that in their own country. Right. And it says a lot about, you know, just kind of the how flat the world is, but how interested the world is in getting out there and discovering new opportunities uh, yeah. for the, the the art forms that they find are interesting. Right. And, and I think it speaks to how important it is that your brand is perceived as being a good quality product. Like TNA can't run a house show because it's such a damaged brand and there's such an expectation among fans to be like, oh, TNA, that's probably going to suck and the booking's probably going to be terrible and they're probably going to do something awful screw job or something but new japan has the perception of wow there's really great wrestling there and uh, as much as like the old guard of wrestling wants to say well you know it doesn't really matter how good the match is or i think having great matches or having great performances or doing stuff that is considered critically good uh is, is something that can help build your brand up to extract economic value uh, out of it but with the new japan world it's so inaccessible most to pick up on what I was saying earlier, it's still inaccessible in terms of the language. There is some English on New Japan World, but there's still a lot of Japanese that I think intimidates people. There certainly isn't a seamless English page. It's it's inaccessible in that I can get it on Fire Stick, I've heard, maybe. There's no mobile app. There's no Apple TV app. There's no Roku app. There's no compatibility with game consoles. And if they had all that, what would the subscriber number be? It would I think if if you're at ninety thousand now, I think if you if you're on all these platforms, I think you're definitely at a hundred thousand at least. Yeah, but it requires a retooling of your your direction to say how do I appeal to the international and specifically the U.S. marketplace, and I think that's something that New Japan has been reluctant to invest in, and and to you know pull. I I don't think they they necessarily thought oh our engine of growth is going to be take the international marketplace and make them happy. But it could I think be. they're really. But I think it has to be. I think, you know, you, you reevaluate this is this is WWE Network year two, where you suddenly say, you know what, I gotta tear up this plan that I developed and I delivered and I gotta yeah. do something very different. It's actually WWE Super Network sir. August of twenty fourteen when they suddenly said, We gotta do cost cutting, we gotta launch everywhere in the world, we gotta uh, drop this, we gotta drop sixty day thing, we gotta you know, they went crazy because they realized, oh, we were wrong with what we positioned ourselves as and yeah. where we thought we could go. Kadani's got and, to listen to that Barrios talk coming up next week. Yeah, yeah. Super uh, sure. Explain to me this tweet. It says, Okada's pants. Yes, no. 
Before I go there, I want to complain about uh, one more thing, though. They could have even, even if they didn't want to, you know, make, make if they can't or it's not tenable yet for them to, to make New Japan World more accessible to uh, worldwide consumers, maybe they could have put it on traditional pay-per-view. Now maybe they're getting enough money from access to not make it worth worth that while. But I think there's, there would have been people who, who watched this show via a torrent or via a daily motion link that would have maybe paid $30 just so they wouldn't have to worry about the friction or the intimidation of the new of new japan world and the worry of oh i'm gonna have to i don't know i'm gonna have to remember to cancel it later i think there are people who will, will just pay 30 dollars so they don't have to deal with that friction absolutely and that's my and, and on the same table. thing of, of of people that would you know enjoy it as a easy to deliver television device yeah. And and be something where you know this weekend, hey, we're gonna watch this in prime time. Right, and it's, uh, it's it actually wasn't Japan. that hard to stay spoiler free. Yeah, and this New Japan World is is just too many clicks. Like, I imagine the number of clicks I would have to take. I've got this iPad here. I'd have to click so many times to get Wrestle Kingdom twelve playing on on a on a player. Let's say on my iPad, and th- this sounds like really shallow, but I this I think this is how the consumer behaves, even if the consumer doesn't talk like this. Like, the consumer wants to. You know, if I have this an option to buy this show on traditional pay per view, I know all I got to do is turn on my TV, which I'm already familiar with how to operate. Go to the guide, find the channel, and order it, and then I know it's going to play pretty reliably on my TV. Whereas that's I've I got to figure out something, I got to learn something. Maybe I got to take an HDMI cable and take it take it from my laptop and plug it into my TV if I even have the input. But I'm not I'm not surprised in the slightest that versus that. Okay, develop this giant infrastructure. Wait to get the pay per view cut. Work with these people. Get deal with the outages and the streaming issues and everything else. Yeah. Versus guaranteed money, U.S. partner, right. TV station, Mark Cuban's behind it. Let's go. Yeah. You know, like we're we're already seeing. You know, people refer to this as Mark Cuban's wrestling fed on right. you know business things because they're just like, well, it airs on Mark Cuban's station, so Mark Cuban must you know be an investor in it. Yeah. And it's like it's the new Ted wow. Turner. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, there, there, there's there's that. We don't know how much money they're getting from access. We don't know how beneficial that relationship is. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's intriguing to me because I think this access availability. If you get access, you're convinced it's great for the brand, and if you don't get access, it seems like the most laughable thing in the world. So it's it's a challenge to me to rely too heavily on that. Because um, it's it's just the penetration's not right, and it's in the medium that is is questionable about whether or not it's going to increase its penetration. Because this is this is you investing in the VHS in the blockbuster in 2000. You know, this is you getting in on the tail end of this stream of media, and then trying to say I'm going to try to expand more and more. Right. But I guess um, the uh, I'm, I'm complaining about this because I, for example, you can get an idea. I think of. How many people have an aversion to New Japan World? I, by like looking at this poll I did, I got 214 votes on it from people who follow me on Twitter. So they're probably going to be predisposed to be fairly hardcore fans in the first place, right? But only 57% of them said they're going to watch on New Japan World and versus 28% of them said they're going to watch through other means. And that could include access, but I think that's a minority. And I think the majority of them were planning to watch or did watch through torrents or through daily and- motion. And if we do the math there, that's about two-thirds, yeah. one-third of yeah. people that said they were going to watch. So two-thirds said they would use New Japan World, yes. but one-third said, I'm watching it through, let's say, typing in the names of the wrestlers on my YouTube Roku app and just seeing what shows up. And 
uh, finding the right matches. So it's it's intriguing to me um, that that they're in a place here where you could say there's a, a very large unserved marketplace. Yeah. And um, that they're the more is this what you mean by friction is that it's it's the friction in, in trying to get the thing delivered to the person who wants to pay for it. Friction is like me not being willing to get closer to consuming some product because the method to consuming it is too unfamiliar or difficult. I have some aversion to it for some reason. That makes sense. That makes sense. Tell me about your other Twitter poll about Okada's pants. More importantly, onto more important things. Okada's pants. Yes or no? 62% say no. Only 38% say yes. Is that because you prefer shorts? on Okada or just the particular pants he was wearing that night Okada never wears pants oh he's he's the Randy Orton of uh, Japan you might say so he, he did wear pants on this night though mm. not getting, not getting uh, very won. favorable reviews he did win and uh, uh, I think as, as our uh, our friend Robin Reed pointed out uh, he did uh, also raise attendance by almost 9,000 so I, what I what I think this is is it's a lesson for Randy that if Randy finds himself in a losing streak, pants might be the way to break it. Get some pants with some uh, generic tribal designs on them. So you you went to Fightful. You wrote a great article there. It is it is called the Post Wrestle Kingdom Twelve New Japan Business Update. Um, it was published on January fifth. Lots of people can watch it. Uh, I mean, sorry, can can read it, and it's got a, a whole comment. Uh, saying all in all great news for wrestling so once again um thoughtful insight being added by our, our fans and and our readers um you also wrote another piece though for fightful uh, a little bit earlier here where it was called what can okada omega and steamboat savage tell us about wrestling audience and uh this is the intersection of aesthetic and economics we talked about this uh, a couple episodes ago or so Okay, I, and I and I told you to uh, I need a taskmaster to make me write this, but I finally found the will. And so this one was just about kind of that difference between what what draws economic value and then what people want to remember uh, as time goes on, and and kind of the the evaluation of how really good wrestling can somehow seep into the person's mindset. Uh maybe it's about I don't know it's it's a, it's a thousand words. Should I just read it verbatim? No, um, no. It's at about, the end of the podcast. You can, yeah. But, and I think you're right. Um, some, and again, our, our friend here, Tap Five Eighty Nine, said, "Great read. Always wonder how Steamboat Savage match would play in today's environment." And it is true, though. Steamboat Savage, like kind of like the Ric Flair um, uh, Savage. I'm sorry, Ric Flair Steamboat matches, or even the the Ric Flair um, Funk matches. It, in some ways play bigger in the mindset and the memories and the collective consciousness of influence. And it's intriguing sometimes what things have such large influence that sometimes have an outsized influence versus their actual economic um, strength. Yeah. I, I, people pointed out to me, you're, you're referencing the funk and flare feud from 89 and we're, and we're referencing the flare and steamboat feud also from 89 earlier in 89. And as people pointed out to me, well, yeah, Steamboat and Flair wasn't that much of an economic success, but Funk and Flair, at least that Great American Bash match in July, that was, I think, the biggest attendance WCW had done up to that point and would do, I think, all the way until 96 when they do the Elio DePaulo show shows here in Buffalo. So there's that, and I think there were some good TV ratings, too, especially for the, the Funk and Flair feud also. But on the whole, WCW in 1989 didn't do that well overall economically, and it's not like 
it was, uh, it's not like 89 was an upward traje- trajectory year going into 90, because it's not like 90 was that much better either. Um, but the point was, I think what's happened in wrestling over time is that the audience's perception of wrestling has changed in that I think you, the further back you go into the past, the more people are strictly concerned with wins and losses, and they're more strictly concerned with my guy winning or losing. And as you go further into time, people become, the fans become more and more aware of wrestling as, as, an, as an aesthetic thing, as a, as a creative act, and people become more and more interested in seeing at least what they perceive to be great matches. Um, so that that stuff matters more uh, the further on we go into time. And still, people, people's personalities, and whether I like a guy or don't like a guy, whether I want a guy to win or lose, that still matters a lot, too. And you can go to any WWE show or any indie show, even any wrestling show just about anywhere, and you'll still see a lot of people cheering and booing people and wanting to see people win and lose. But there's also this other part of fandom, this other part of economic demand in the wrestling industry that is driven by aesthetic quality what we might call you know what what the stuff that that critics review and give star ratings to and then an example of this if you just talk about 1989 is that well maybe in 1989 flair and steamboat had those three big matches and maybe they weren't didn't do huge business but but that flair ultimate collection flair dvd that that wb sold in 2003 that sold pretty well right and part of the reason why it sold well is because of the the legend of the two out of the three Flair Steamboat matches that are included in that DVD. No, it's similar with the Lawler Funk stuff, where that didn't necessarily draw that great, but then years later, as kind of a nostalgia act, it drew. It drew. Or same with, um, I think they did the same thing in Japan with an Abdullah thing uh, a couple years back, where it drew really well, and they were saying it might even be better than it was actually at his at some of the peaks. Right. Um, just because, yeah, from from a nostalgic point of view, a lot of times people are are drawn to those things that they can remember. And, you know, rose-colored glasses, that's all definition of it, is that we remember these things fondly. And they're the things that stay with us and, and are embedded into our collective memories. Yeah. And I think what's taught fan culture to be this way is are the underground fans who were the tape traders uh, in the 90s who uh i don't know went went on to onto message boards like like the valley driver and came up with you know the top top matches of the 90s and everything and i think you were involved in that and and all the uh, all the rewatch projects and of the various territories in the 80s and all that stuff just for one example yeah, um yeah and, there's, there's often times things that 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 come out of those rewatches where we realize the the greatness of things that were not collectively recognized at that time right and and these are the these are the types of communities that I think inform new fans or just less experienced fans about okay what are some recommendations what are some matches that I should check out and this slowly filters down through down to the more mainstream or more casual fans so that you know I think fandom in general just becomes more and more aware of wrestling as this creative thing as as this as this art sort of like you know people watch movies and people are well aware of uh, wanting to see. A, what, what's a good movie and people have a, a vast variety of opinions about what's a good movie and what's not just like people will have a vast variety of opinions about what's a good match what's a good promo what's a good angle what's a good storyline what's a good show but people are aware of wrestling as an art as a as a thing that is intentionally trying to uh, entertain you or get some sort of emotional response out of you they're aware of that in a way that people were not aware of it in previous decades 
I think we have a better dissemination of information, the ability to instantly recall that information through the use of the internet. That also helps a lot that, you know, things that have been then captured and protected, we, we, we have a lot better ability for us to evaluate it in today's eyes. And so there are some things where there's people that the story lives on much more than the match. And then there's now opportunity where you can, you know, kind of force feed people and say, Hey, look here, I can show you Andre the Giant versus Stan Hansen. You can see what that was like. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to switch gears. Uh, the 205 Live House Show that we've talked a lot about uh, yeah. that coming up this year where, you know, I was saying there's there's economic engines for WWE. One economic engine has been live events, run more events, price your high tickets higher, uh, just run lots and lots more events. One economic engine is obviously TV rights renewals. One of them is um, WWE Network subscriptions continuing to find ways to extract more value from that. And then one engine is is essentially – just understanding the licensing deals that they have and whether that's producing, you know, uh, new shows like, you know, Mix Match Challenge with Facebook or whether it's, you know, a new television series like some Ms. and Maurice thing. Um, just understanding how you can basically license or outgrow your brand in a new way that's going to help you get more revenue for the end of the year. Um, what's happening with the 205 Live house shows? They have a three-day weekend coming up on January 19th, 20th, and 21st, or at least we thought they did, but they've canceled their show on the 19th in Rhode Island. But the other two shows, which I believe are in Lowell, Massachusetts, and Hartford, Connecticut, are still on. John Pollock confirmed. Yeah, and and, um, was this 119 show, wasn't that going to be part of this? uh, We said how Bray Wyatt and Matt Hardy had been kind of added to this loop. Would that have been one of those shows where they would be on? They're added to all three, yeah. Yeah, so... So this is a good example of, you know, they were testing the waters. They were looking for, you know, honestly, I think the show was only looking to draw somewhere between 800 and and 1200. I mean, they obviously want to do more, but um, realistically, I don't think anyone could have had an expectation much more above a thousand. And the fact that they're canceling it, calling it due to scheduling and routing issues. Yeah, my my guess is that you know we're we're not in the place here where we can say the snow is really definitely going to kill it uh, this many weeks out. So uh, this feels like to me much more of just we could not um, engage enough people to want to come to this place to see this show, and uh, uh, a, a building only drawing four hundred is probably worse than just drawing you know eight hundred or nine hundred yeah. on the second night. And we saw this with India, you know, um, where they have an opportunity. And it doesn't sell out. Sometimes they're going to reinvest those resources in a different way. And yeah. so it'll be intriguing to see what some of those guys are doing on January 19th, whether or not they, they get scattered to a different house show somewhere else or whether they're just literally not starting. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm guessing this was the, the beginning of the loop. Yeah, this was Friday. Yeah, um, because it would make no sense if they canceled the Saturday show. So if you're going to cancel a show, you're probably going to cancel it the weakest day of the month or of the weekday and, and usually yeah. it's going to be the non-weekend day uh so it makes more sense for it for it to be the friday show and then this way you just delay everyone going out for a day early and i'm gonna argue that this is related to the article that i really just talked about like the reason why why aren't presumably these shows aren't drawing well so why is that i think the answer is because 205 live sucks like 205 live doesn't there are great wrestlers there are great great talents there but Maybe Enzo Amore's helped it, but there's not a lot that people, and, and Drew Gulak's doing a great job, but there's not a lot that people really care about strongly. There's a feeling that, that, you know, this is not a product that's earned goodwill like NXT has. This is not a, a huge major league product like the, like the W main roster is. This is just a third or fourth brand that uh, 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of focus and there doesn't well, the, seem... the irrelevance of an irrelevant house show is yeah. is compounded right so if house shows are already irrelevant and then you're going to put the irrelevant brand on a house show you know the, the very least you could have done is fake a tournament do a do do some kind of two night tournament or something where you could you know pretend like you're doing something yeah, there, that's interesting there's some stakes here but there's yeah this, you know this is a, a house show that's going to be as inconsequential as every other house show on the most inconsequential brand you know, call hey, King of the Ring started off, I think, in uh, Rhode Island or, or whatnot before it was ever a pay per view event. So you know, do run a King of the Ring up there. But I guess what I'm saying is, th- this is a brand that could have been booked to accumulate buzz, just like the Cruiserweight Classic was and did. But uh, and I don't think it's just a matter of well, they're after SmackDown that the crowd's tired. I think it's a matter of how it's been booked, and and that's weakened this brand. So if, if you ever want to make an argument that, that booking matters economically, I think this is one piece of evidence. 87, 88, 89, and 91, it was held in Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, there you go. See, there's a long history of Providence, Rhode Island being your King of the Ring center. So I think uh, I think Randy Savage, Ted DiBiase, Tito Santana, and Bret Hart are all going to feel sad not knowing that uh, that's not happening. If, if WD ran Cruiserweight Classic House shows... Right after the Cruiserweight Classic ended, sure. I think it would, would be they bigger. do better or worse than to a uh, depends or the same. Honestly, it would depend if Kota Ibushi and uh, Zack Saber Jr. were on it. Hmm. I, I honestly think you know, in terms of if you're talking about that that the fan that thinks it's consequential or inconsequential for a hardcore brand like that, I do think it makes a difference, um, and you know, it will draw a hundred people difference, and for them, that could be a fifth or a tenth of the audience, so that's going to make a big deal. So, Brandon, there's a good piece at Seeking Alpha that I enjoyed. It was called WWE's New Year's Resolution Should Include a Formal Secession Plan. Yeah. By And then the, the name of the company, I want to credit them, but it's a weird name for a company. It's like Curna Bail Investments. So, um, Curna Bale. Bale, which, um, yeah. you know, they, they, it means the stretch for home in Irish Gaelic. So maybe one of our um, our, our uh, UK listeners can say it correctly for us. Yeah. Um, and this person has written about WWE before. In fact, like me, they only seem to write about WWE. In really? 2011, they wrote, is WWE a viable engine for growth? In uh, 2011, they wrote, five things you won't hear on WWE's Friday conference call. In 2011, they wrote, WWE entertainment plunges on earning projections. Got, got dividends some Smith and Wesson stuff here, though. Yes, yes, they do. But um, and even as far back as 2007 and 2008, oh, wow. he wrote a is WWE recession proof and is WWE the worst over? So this guy has been on Seeking Alpha for a very long time. This guy or gal or group of guys or gals has been on for quite some time and has looked at WWE in depth for much longer than I have. You know, it's 10 plus years here. So maybe I'll have to drop them a note at some point and say, hey, would you like to uh, trade thoughts with me on what's going? Because, you know. It's tough for me sometimes to find other people that, you know, kind of have had the long view on WWE. It's easy to find a lot of Johnny Come Latelys. And I, I don't necessarily mean that in a, a dismissive way, but I do feel like you meet a lot of people who only have a time frame of two or three or four years, and then you say to them, Well, don't you understand what happened when Viacom didn't want to negotiate with them anymore, and they had to give up all their TV advertising revenue that they received when they moved back to USA, and they'd look at you like you're crazy. 
And you realize that, oh, you you don't really understand like the history of this company. You just understand the stock machinations of the last two or three years. Sounds like a Russellomics radio podcast. Yeah. So I, I, I appreciate someone who has a longer thing here. And I, and I also appreciate that he's saying something that I have said before, which is um, that WWE really does owe it to its, its company, to its shareholders, if they really care about their shareholders, that they should at some point make it clear what is going to happen when 72-year-old Vince is not necessarily the principal of the company and who is going to take over and why is this person qualified to take over. And before everyone just says Paul Levesque, I want you to keep in mind that Paul Levesque, as far as I know, holds no university degrees in business. And himself even said he struggled to put together the investment case for WWE NXT. And furthermore, what I would say with the Performance Center, look at the enormous amount of bloat that the Performance Center has contributed to corporate and other spending over the last five years here. And I'm not saying that's not a good investment for them for the future, but I'd also challenge to say it's not a profitable investment. It is a long-term investment in order to build your brand and to change the way that you're functioning as a developmental capability. But it, it's a it's a hard push to then say, well, Paul did this right, so he's he's ready to run the company. There's a big difference between being a really good scriptwriter and being able to manage the books and hire the right people and listen to the right people and and you know create a environment where the right decisions are being made. I, th- I don't think Paul Levesque will ever be the CEO of this company, but I think he's going to be eventually the booker or the head of creative of this company. And when people talk about WWE online in decades to come, they're going to talk about Triple H as being the guy who's in charge of at least what happens on TV. Yeah, um, and, and more than ever, we need this this um, secession plan. Because in years past, you could always go back to the Linda defense. Linda will take over if Vince went away. Because Linda has always been seen as a steady manager. Not necessarily an innovative, interesting person in the wrestling world, but she was a good manager. And the problem is Linda has a real job now that is far more to what I think she wants to do with her life. Yeah. And the idea that she would hang up her SBA boots and put on her WWE boots again or is actually a far cry. The only other time, you know, that, that um, my understanding, they said during the steroid trial when there's an opportunity that Vince and or Vince and Linda could be indicted for things that, you know, I think the idea was bringing Jerry Jarrett. Yeah. And he was just going to do steady hand um, for years. He's still available. He is. I've talked about, you know, Basil DeVito as a guy that um, was a business advisor for WWE for decades and is an advisor to the board. Uh, I strongly, strongly, strongly wonder if someone could get Basil DeVito on the line, you could probably figure out what Vince wants to do about football. I was thinking about this today. He was like a key guy for the XFL. And if you want to really understand who's the Vince, president, I think. Yeah, if you want to understand where Vince's headspace is around football, talk to Basil DeVito. I bet you anything you'll get your answer about what he's hearing because Vince doesn't seem like the sort of guy who's, um, you know, uh, disseminate taking all this information in and understanding it. It sounds like it's being fed to him by other people. And I bet you anything Basil's one of those guys. Um, but, yeah, that, that's a challenge is that you, you can't necessarily bring Linda back. So at that point, then you do need to probably appoint another McMahon heir heir. So whether that's Shane or Stephanie, and then you would probably have another heir who would be working on a different area of the company, and you'd you'd might even be looking for some outside leadership. I think George Berrios has made a very strong play in the last five years here to make himself more and more and more as the face of the company to investors. I mean, 90% of the investors have never met Vince McMahon, um, but they probably met George Berrios if they've ever met a WWE official. 
So I could see a strong play where he would be pushing to move from the CFO role to the CEO role yeah. or the COO role or the president of the board or some some kind of special title that puts him really on charge. And, you know, it, it's not uncommon for some companies to have people that run the business as a business but don't have any understanding of the, you know, the guts of the business. You know, they don't understand yeah. how the microprocessors work. They don't, they're not an engineer by trade, but they are really good businessman. Yeah, I, th- I think George Barrios has little understanding of wrestling creatively or any of that. I mean, like he, he seems to barely know who Seth Rollins is, but I think he he gets what's going on with media and what WWE needs to do with new media. I could also see it being someone even like Michelle Wilson, who while I don't necessarily think she's, you know, the strongest in the WWE hierarchy. I could also see the influence of, say, a Linda McMahon-type secession plan that says we would like to have a woman leader in this company to front it to show that we're the new WWE. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do think Stephanie might be a little – again, we've, we've said it before. Vince, Vince's roles would probably become three or four different roles, the head of the board, the president of the company, the CEO, you know, all these different chief operations and all these other things. But um, And Paul Levesque would be head of creative, yeah. Yeah, I could see an element where even a woman leader would come out on top of here. And Linda, for many, many, many years, was the head of WWE. You know, people people forget that because, you know, I think they thought it had a lot of advantages for them to say that they were a woman-owned business or a woman But who was really business. making the decisions when Linda was whatever her title was? Oh, I, I mean, I think it was always Vince was, you know, Vince and his team were part of it. Though, I, I don't want to underplay what Linda did. You know, Linda did a business the, the the elements of being WWE president. And if you look at those letters, you know, Linda's signatures all over letters, even offer letters to wrestlers. You know, there's a lot that's going on there that she was crossing. But I think at the same time, it's being a bureaucrat. You know, I'm not surprised that she's the one that's ended up in the government here. Um, but I, I think they recognize that there's a lot more opportunities for them in different directions here if they continue to embrace, you know, both female leadership roles in their company and also uh, a somewhat decentralized McMahon uh face forward while still maintaining a McMahon presence. And it's really hard to say what Shane would end up doing. I think Shane would kill to be back in. But at the same time, um, I think that ship has sailed in a lot of ways, and it's really tough for him to imagine being the guy anymore. So Vince still has 43% of the company stock, something like that, right? So mm-hmm. do, we, do we know what, what happens if Vince passes away? Where do those shares go? Do they all go all right. to Linda? I'd assume they go to the irrevocable trust that he's probably set up um, in the secession plan. And, and that's – he co-owns that with Linda? Um, I think the trust in some ways spreads out the, the shares across all his children. Is, so I think that it goes would to Linda. I mean I, 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 I honestly don't know where it all goes. Yeah, I, I, I think – oh, yeah. I think if Vince dies, a portion of his wealth goes to Shane unless you know literally he's changed his trust in such a way that it doesn't. It could be that it 100 percent goes to Linda. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, uh, a, a trust and estates lawyer, so I can't say exactly what the secession would be. I mean, normally it would be 100 percent to your spouse. But mm-hmm. since he probably has a trust set up and we know he has a trust set up because when he sold shares, they've talked about the irrevocable trust mm-hmm. that he's set up. So uh, it's hard to say what that secession planning would go to. I wouldn't be surprised if a portion of it goes to, you know, some crazy charity. You know, the, uh, the, for all we know, it goes to the Donald Trump Foundation. And these would remain Class B shares. If, if they went to Stephanie and Shane and Linda, they could all remain Class B shares. I think so. Which, I think by so. the way, we should explain what a Class B share means. If, if 
if you have class, only the McMahon family can have the class B shares. And if you have a class B share, it means you have 10 times the amount of voting rights of any, any other person who has a share. Like if I bought some stock in WB, I would have class A shares and that would give me a one-to-one voting power. But the McMahon family has a one-to-ten voting power. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah. And, and specifically when Vince McMahon just liquidated, you know, that was it, $96 million of stock. What he actually did was convert $96 million of stock from class B to class A shares and then sell class A shares. Yeah. Yeah, so he didn't even really sell the class B shares. And that's that's what I was going to say is that ultimately what's probably going to happen in his death is that they would be converted from B to A. Now, that creates again another succession question. But he Are could, you but giving he could away give... control of your company? Yes, exactly. Are you giving away control of your company by an automatic conversion of share type from B to A? In that situation, or does it is the trust allowed to you know hold them as as Class B shares? I have no idea. I mean, it's an interesting scenario you've just laid out here, which is but he's you know, already Vince dies he, and he loses control of the company. He can give Class B to his family. He In could. fact, he already has it. I mean, that that's why Stephanie has Class B. <coughs> Absolutely. So St- Stephanie, he, by the way, owns like two percent of the shares of, of of the company, and those are Class B shares. She has some Class A as well, and she's mm-hmm. made some sales on those, but she has. A significant portion of Class B shares, and and it gets it gets goofy too because as a director, you're awarded shares each year, and we just saw all the directors go through and kind of you know add their shares, and so that's also the element where Stephanie, as a director, probably accumulates Class A shares when she gets it, and it's not that you can just instantly I think turn Class A shares into Class B shares. I don't think that's how it works. So I would actually need a securities lawyer on here to talk about, you know, all the the interesting situations that happen with that class B share structure. There's many companies that do this. It's a way to control your public stock in a private organization. Um, And as an investor, you kind of have to take it on the chin that regardless of how annoyed you can be with how they might run their company – uh, you don't really have the ability to stop them from running their company that way short of driving the stock price down and making people unhappy. And, and this, this might be a really crazy idea, but like could we end up in a situation where let's say Vince passes away and he gives half of his stock to Stephanie and half of his stock to Shane and now, you know, like they're they're not agreeing on everything and uh, they have some, I don't know, they have some disagreements about what the future of the business should be, but they – I would have to do the math on like what's the control because he has like eighty percent. Well, yeah, that would be the key. Is at that point you might so actually let's be say, able to say, let's the say investors like Stephanie has forty one percent and Shane has forty one percent of of the voting power now. Yeah. So now there's so nobody it, who has controlling power in WWE. And again, when we talk about what is it that you get to vote on, well, you get to vote on who gets appointed to the board of directors, right? That that's kind of what that voting power is about is approving. That sort of thing. So what you would do in that It would have something to do with deciding who's going to be the CEO too, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know if it would uh, – I think the company itself would choose its CEO. I think that the president of the board might be different. Don't, don't, don't conflate the two positions here, the head of the board of directors and the, the, the CEO of the company. Yeah. Who, who, so, picks, who would pick the CEO then? Do you have any idea? Probably the secession plans that they have in the, the company themselves. So, you know, so you think there are some secession plans that are not publicized? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I. I mean, I. It would be basically they would have a search committee. They would have. They would appoint people to that search committee. Now, do I think that the the board of directors would have to probably ratify it or something? That's a very strong possibility. But you know, the the company itself would probably produce the candidate and say this is who we want. And 
you know, rarely those kind of decisions are being made. If anything, a lot of times what happens is someone puts a bunch of money in and they get to choose who the new CEO is. I mean, if you watch what happened to you on demand, Shane McMahon startup, what happened? Well, Bruno Wu came in for the seven stars uh, capital fund, injected a bunch of money in there and basically said, okay, all the directors, you have to leave. I get to choose all the new directors and Vince and Shane McMahon, you're no longer the uh, president of the company. You're going to be related to this board role. And, you know, so, so it, oftentimes who's paying the bills makes it, you know, makes the choices and you're expected to go along, but you're right. It could trigger a, a fight. And in that case, it would go to probably the large companies that are holding tracks of stock, you know, the Lindell trains or the Goldman Sachs or the Wells Fargo's or whoever it is that's holding large areas of stock now. And it would be lobbying those people to see who they think is the best candidate for the views of how to make the company better. Um, I- I get like the thing that would get clicks is that could this lead to a, a big conflict down the line between she and Stephanie? I don't know what their secession plan is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It goes back to that fundamental question. Um, yeah. That once we know uh, my guess is that we're not at that place where it's going to happen, but at the same time, could it, you know, I feel like the uncertainty is there. I feel like, you know, Shane McMahon, he's involved in this long lawsuit right now about his New York apartment. Um, this is one of those those scoops that I never talk about. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's he's in this giant lawsuit right now all over his New York apartment about how there that he claims there's toxic mold and it is made his wife very sick and she can't work because of it and they can't live there and it's back and forth and back and forth within the the apartment then like suing them for not paying their dues. Does he also have like empty marijuana pods in the, in the apartment? <laughs> that... I don't. I don't think that's it. But that's actually how I found it. Is I was searching for Shane McMahon lawsuits, and I discovered this whole New York section that was that was quite drawn out for years and years. It's been going on, um, and so you know he's got a distraction. Let's put it that way. It is a, a big distraction. This lawsuit. I think it's bigger than people have realized in terms of the amount. I mean, they're to the point of trying to get the kids to testify and all the really all the things that happen. These kids are are not that old. No, right. that's the point is then you have to have adults involved and wow. you have to give consent. And, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a drawn out New York real estate battle about this thing, about whose responsibility is to basically clean this quote unquote mold and, and make it inhabitable. So he, he's involved in stuff like that. So it's hard to say if, you know, some of the reason that he hasn't wanted to come back to WWE is because he's got other things that are kind of pressing issues about being a father and, and raising kids. At the same time, you know, he's this jet setter, you know, on helicopters and, and investing in, in projects that go nowhere. And he's in plane crashes. And yeah. So it, it's hard to say what, them, what, 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 off his, hell in the cells. what his next step here is. You know, I think WWE in some ways is kind of the cash cow for him as a, a landing pad almost, you know, where it's, it's tough to envision this version where he's going Machiavellian and trying to turn the family upon itself uh, as much as. Honestly, I think it's going to be – you're going to see some insiders like the Barrioses and the Wilsons of the world. And the reality is those are people that are much closer to the Stephanie McMahon and Paul Levesque world than they are to the Shane McMahon world because they're not from that same era. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, Shane has no position in the company other than being a performer. Yeah, he's a performing contract. And then every year when they, they give out this um, – statement about the board compensation they have to basically disclose how much they pay shane mcmahon because he is a a relative of somebody on the board and so they basically have to disclose that yes we have people that are related to this person and they get hundreds of thousands of dollars two million i think yeah 
Oh, I was thinking of like two years ago. It was like he got a bunch of money for for WrestleMania, and then it said we don't know how much it's going to be. And then the next year it was a lot more money because by that time he had he had signed a kind of performer's contract to appear every week. Yeah, but yeah. So th- there's it's interesting to me, but I I would always put it put out when people say, oh, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. Remember, the stock fell when Vince McMahon pretended to sell the company to Trump. The stock fell when when Vince McMahon pretended to die on television. In 2007. Be- because... That was also right around the time of Chris Benoit's death. So you, you, you sure that's the reason? Uh, I, think, I think it was the next night on Raw. And it's because yeah. the wrestling aggregators report this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to tell fact from fiction. I mean... When you go to Google News, the fact that Sportskedia shows up there, you know, like that's not a reliable news source of anything, but it shows up on Google News. And if you're an investor and you're using algorithms to look up things and you see the words Vince McMahon dies, of course, it's going to trigger a sale. Right. If you have any kind of algorithmic trading, that's the sort of thing you want to get in on. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing where like Vince has actually tried more and more to remove himself from some of these elements of Vince McMahon, the character, and Vincent K. McMahon, CEO of the company. And that's why it's so dangerous. You know, when he's taking shoot headbutts from Kevin Owens on television, you're basically subjecting serious head trauma to one of the most important individuals in your entire company. <laughs> yeah, that's true. On purpose. I mean, it's a big deal. That's why, that's why people don't quite always get it, that there's a lot of value that's tied up in this, that is tied up around Vince McMahon. And that's why it's so fascinating to me that the idea that if he starts his company, how much distraction will it be? Well, how is he going to compensate the company legally for the assets like XFL that he would try to obtain from them? And how much of a conflict of interest might this create with any other relationships that he's pursuing in this company? Mm-hmm. So... Um, speaking of possible successor, successor, chief strategy and financial officer, Mr. George A. Berrios will be speaking on January 9th. He'll be speaking at the Citigroup 2018 TMT West Conference in Las Vegas. So outside of his normal stomping grounds of New York and Florida, um, it'll be January 9th, 2018, approximately 11 a.m. Pacific time, which is 2 p.m. Eastern time, 1 p.m. Central time. No idea what time that is in Europe. I will guess 630. Just add five to the Eastern time. So uh, it'll be... 7 p.m. Uh, and and you, you, it, you can listen to this online, and hopefully either Brandon or I will get a chance to listen to this. Again, the initial presentation is going to just be the slick, willy talk that we always hear George doing. But it's the Q&A where sometimes little nuggets come out about you know TV negotiations, about his thoughts on the ecosystem. We've seen him really kind of tone down his rhetoric about you know moving to streaming and a lot more about the tradition channels paying for for content i would love to see if he makes any reference about ufc or about how those negotiations are going and i would love to see you know kind of what the new talking buzzwords are going to be for 2018 because at some point they usually kind of roll out the whole new lingo is it going to be super serve again is it going to be about you know let's maximize our live event entertainment opportunities or what what are they going to talk about are they going to portray 205 live as a raving success the way that we hear about it on the conference calls despite the fact that they're canceling house shows yeah. you know i'm i'm fascinated to see which things he's doing and i'm hoping that it will be we'll see some slides but usually we don't usually it's just audio yeah i've added it to my calendar so i will plan on listening live maybe even live tweet it you, you, yeah. you may be too busy celebrating your birthday, though. That is true. I might be. 
Wells Fargo put the target price for WWE stock at $43. That's a 34% increase to the current price of 32 bucks. Yeah. It did drive up the stock by several percentage points. We already see the stock back at 31 bucks. So even after Vince McMahon extracted all that value from the stock, we're already seeing it go back up, up, up again. Uh, again, I think that's a huge coup on Vince's part is that, you know, the leader of a company took out a, almost $100 million of value in his company right before a big key negotiation and people didn't freak out all that much because he gave him this, the story that he was starting in a football league. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Wells Fargo, 43 bucks seems rich to me. You know, I say that every time we seem to go up another $10 is I say seems rich to me. Um, they, they don't put a timeline on that, right? Um, I think it means they believe in some horizon of time. I don't know. I'd have to read the actual analysis to see whether that's 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, what time frame they give. But I'm sure there is a, a, a time frame on it. And specifically, they said it checks all the boxes for 2018 and it has a peer, clear path of catalysts for the year. So I'm guessing that, you know, they're thinking by the end of 2018 or something so around there's there. There's a or, PDF somewhere that we don't have access to where they go into this and explain why. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's a recommendation somewhere that that hopefully some one of my um, uh, talented sources. individuals in the uh, the investing community might be able to uh, slide in my DMs with. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting to see. Now, this is, I think, some of the first talk I've seen of $40. You know, I, I can't recall anyone else who's given a, a target that's that quite that high from a reputable source. So I'll be very intrigued to see also when at the next conference call, you know, the comments coming from Wells Fargo. I don't remember whether that's Eric Katz or who that is. Yeah, that's Eric. I was going to say, is this Eric Katz writing this? That's kind of kind of sick that I remember the names of of investment analysts for WWE from from firms, and this is not even my day job. Yeah, who, who uh, else I is want... there? Is Eric Katz, Brandon Ross, Laura Martin, uh, our friend at PAA, Brad uh, Saffalo. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's there's Mike Hickey, and yep. and there's a Smart. there's a rotating group of people that come in and come out of the picture every six months, you know, and so the fact that Goldman. I think it was uh, – I'm sorry, J.P. Morgan Chase has now decided to cover the stock. We're going to see the uh, the person who wrote that long analysis that we talked about a few shows ago. Yeah. He'll probably be on the call and asking some questions. Mm. So it's it's a uh, set of characters for sure. And uh, I'm always welcome to uh, to uh, fence against any one of them, to spar, as they like as the Danes like to say, to spar with any well, of them. I, I guess if you think bundles are always going to exist, does that kind of guarantee that TV rights are always going to be – really lucrative uh, i think tv rights are going to be worth more than they're worth today for wwe because of the low viewer the low value that viewers are being given today on on the television product and the fact that more and more the advertising is controlled by the media conglomerate by usa network and nbc universal rather than wwe themselves mm-hmm. i do think that there's a that and the jp morgan thing makes it really clear that there's you know there's a value you create for the product where you say this is how much the advertising brings in. This is how much the internal advertising, the halo effect is. And this is how much it's worth us to just maybe be this good. You know, The value to, to USA Network is more than just the advertising dollars. It's the fact that they can call themselves the number one network on cable and get better ad rates because of the number one network on cable because they get WWE eyeballs. Right. So you, you add that all up and then you subtract out how much you pay for this. And then if – the calculus looks right for you 
you, you go in the deal and you make a pitch and if the calculus doesn't, you don't. And it's always going to be timing because mm-hmm. what might make value to you always has some assumption on it in year two, three, four, and five. What are you going to get for eyeballs? And I think at one time for WWE Raw, you know, they they, they touted their ratings as, as DVR proof and they touted it as basically we get the same amount of viewers every year. Well, you know what happened right after they signed the deal? Ratings started to plummet. Yeah, they used so, to use DVR proof more, didn't they? They don't anymore. Yeah. So that, that's a great example of where, you know, you put a bunch of assumptions into the model that X was going to happen and Y did. And, of course, the narrative changed. And that's why you can't just take the company's word and you can't just ignore the fact that they said X in this statement six months ago. You have to hold them accountable. And that's why what there's a, obviously a lack of a lot of times. And that's why I say people have short memories as investors as they come and go so often that they don't remember what was promised to us on blank year? Why was three to four million promised to us for WWE Network subscriptions? Was that really an aspiration or was that more of something to say, we're going to get there? Did Vince say, you can put me in a hammerlock if we don't double or triple this thing? You know, th- th- there was a lawsuit after that. I brought this up to a reporter who called to talk to me about, you know, a WWE. And I was like, you know, there was a lawsuit over the last time they did this. And the person had no idea whatsoever. And it just says a lot to me that you can cover this thing and not even understand that there was, in fact, legal action situated out of the fact that they didn't make their promises last time and that everyone is buying this fan fiction once again. I'm not saying that they don't have a strong case, and I don't. I think they have much better fundamentals now than they did several years ago. And for all the bluster and anger that I had about the WWE Network and the launching and the timing, I think now they're at a place where it makes a lot more sense and everything. They they, they can go ahead. It's a known quantity. Yeah. But well, it, I, well, I think – the speculation this time around versus 2014 is way more realistic. Um, I think the coverage by the major firms is more realistic in some ways. I think this well, this Wells Fargo value seems out of the world to me. I, you know, I think the J.P. Morgan Chase number was more like thirty six, thirty seven dollars, and so we're talking about a, a large premium increase to that. Mm-hmm. So I'd be really curious to see what they're using to justify that. I'm, I'm guessing it comes from a lot more. 1.35 or 1.5 x domestic rights value i'm guessing it comes from you know again one of these hey you got this facebook deal now i can put facebook stock symbol in my analysis here and that's going to make people think that i'm i'm got limitless uh upward potential and, and like for all we say about raw and smackdown having not good ad rates raw and smackdown is is not a loss leader for usa network right they make their money back on the ads we believe so I mean, we that's what J.P. Morgan so. said. J.P. Morgan guesses so. We don't know. No, no one prints a balance sheet that says, you know, this is profitable. Now, they do print a balance sheet. I think that says that USA Network is very profitable. And so I think people assume from that we can conclude that Raw being, you know, the thing that they probably spend. I don't know if USA Network spends more money on anything else than Raw as an individual programming. Yeah. You know, all the rights for the different shows. Obviously, the production budgets for some of those shows are actually probably, you know, Queen of the South is a lot more expensive than people might think it would be. Consider, you know, if you think about how expensive it is to produce Total Divas and Total Bellas, just think about a real TV show. You know, millions and millions of dollars per episode. So, it, it, but my, my point is that USA Network is profitable. Raw is a, a staple of it. And so I think they, they can conclude from there that they are getting more money than the value of, of what they spend on it. But that can flip, that can change. And also you can't prove that, you know, Fox Sports 1 is necessarily going to find the same profitability because it also it has sometimes to do with the crossover effect, the halo effect of either pushing your network to the top and or promoting other shows on your network and or cross-promoting your your stars in these shows. So, you know, when you when you see Ted DiBiase Jr. in a, in a USA show or Charlotte Flair in the Psych movie, you know, is there a value to that? 
I, I guess the point I'm getting at is it's does it does Raw and SmackDown function like a loss leader, whether or not it's really profitable. But let's I think we can probably we can say that it's probably not as profitable as some other shows are. But but maybe it um it ensures that the carriage fees you know, we keep getting the carriage fees because we have this really high high rated show that a lot of people watch, even if even if their impressions aren't aren't that valuable. There's still I mean, a lot of people watching it, so it it makes sure that the cable system, the satellite systems, pay USA Network the carriage fees to carry the USA. Oh Network. yeah, I mean that that's why I say if Access won Raw and SmackDown, you would see Access on tons more shows, right? That's the whole argument about ESPN. ESPN is worried about that maybe people are going to cut them out of the bundle. So one, what's the best way of doing that is that you put programming on there that makes people revolt if they can't get it. So there is definitely that stickiness factor. And uh, what you're describing, too, is the way that people evaluate digital media value, right, is what's the stickiness of me being on this this sort of channel and how enriching consumers in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just finish us off. We talked last week about the Wrestling Observer Awards. We talked a little bit about what the box office draw award should be. And I think Dave Meltzer just must have been listening to the show once again, big fan. Um, and he, he wrote in that um, as far as the Conor McGregor question goes, that's a weird one. Let's face it. Anyone but Conor McGregor winning biggest box office draw would be ridiculous in a year. He employed Mayweather did almost as much total revenue on their own in one night as WWE and UFC did in the entire year. But it was a boxing match. But it was co-promoted by UFC. And it made all the difference in terms of them having a great financial year as opposed to a bad one. But McGregor never fought once in MMA. But there was also no question that it, to the MMA fans, they spent more money and more than watched Mayweather versus McGregor than anything else this year. By that standard, in a publication covering the business of MMA, it is burying your head in the sand, stupid, to act like it doesn't count in the business categories like best draw. However, it would not count for best match, as if it even had a chance to win to begin with. But as far as other applicable app categories, whether he fought in MMA or not, who drew more money and as a show itself, everything related to the promotion of the event that led to the drawing and the drawing at that level of revenue should count. What so does that Dave, last sentence mean? I think, I th- I think just, we could have a, uh, a seminar on what that last sentence is trying to say. <laughs> I, I think Dave is trying to say that, you know, best feud or best, you know, things like that category, it should be eligible for because it was things that were in the course of leading to the event. Yeah, I, I think – this example is an example of why MMA and, and pro wrestling shouldn't be mixed in these awards. It, this is like the first, this is the first incline into a slippery slope of, I've, I've put in here, in the very same issue that this excerpt that you just read uh, is, is written in, there's another excerpt later on in the WB section that says, for New Year's weekend, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, starring Dwayne Johnson, drew $50 million dollars. So I'm, are we going to consider Dwayne Johnson's um, movie, the, the money that he's drawn on movies? Because... Only the ones where he's credited as The Rock. Mm. So Scorpion King. But you know, like, I, and I know that's a, that's a further cry than, yeah. than but let's, point, let's vote for Conor being... McGregor for best, best box office. But, like, I think, that's, I think Dwayne Johnson's example is just, just further down on the slope. Yeah, if Ronda Rousey goes in to do acting or Ronda Rousey is doing, uh, you know, um, a television competition show and it draws a lot of money somehow. If if Ronda Rousey appears on Teen Jeopardy, you know, yeah. it would, yeah. at what point do we pull it and say, 
well, because the fans of this person came from this Fed, then we should apply. I, I understand where Dave is coming from, which is yeah. he's saying I mean, they, they use the technique. Dwayne Johnson was never a wrestler. He never gets to become such a big movie star. Yeah, yeah. it's it's it is a slippery slope for sure. Um, I think it actually annoys me more that Dave covers tangential. I, I think I've ranted about it before. There's nothing that annoys me more than when we get the Australian box office grosses for movies that are like tangentially related to MMA where he'll be like, here comes the boom did this in Australia this weekend. And I'll just be like, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody needs that. You don't need to publish that person uh, who, who sent you that fact. It's an irrelevant fact. It's, it's not meaningful at this time. And so I've, I've been annoyed for a while by some of these movie gross things creeping into the observer and filling up lines, but that's just Mookie talking. But I bring up this rock thing because he it's kind of like what you're saying is that he he puts this in the observer whenever there's a rock movie he's he's putting in how much money it drew well he which, which kind of signals to who me, do you think sent me that I think is what he would say is it's clear that his publicist uh, for the rock you know yeah. Dave wants to stay on good terms so Dave thinks that it's it's part of how you pay you know a lot of media is built that way where you 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 publish little tidbits by people to keep them kind of friendly to you and mm-hmm. you don't feel like you've sacrificed your credibility because they're facts. Yeah. I mean, yeah. don't, don't tell me that, you know, the observer and the, the torch and other people aren't publishing things by people that, you know, have a reason that they send them to them for facts and breaking news and other information. It happens all the time. Yeah. I, I, and I think the thing that's been more pronounced to me in the last couple of years than ever is sort of questioning. I think of like the Kenny Omega stuff last year, like, what what's really going on here and on our all the reporters of wrestling news are they aware of of when they're being worked i'm not sure you know i do want to um quickly mention some shitty award winners uh including the site you were mentioning fightful won best review site for the year uh voices of wrestling won best show previews and of course we are proud to be part of the voices of wrestling network best breaking news was for twitter which we're both available on and Mukigana and at Brandon Thurston. The yeah. best news aggregator is Twitter, and uh, I can testify to that with my Iron uh, Iron Man Jimmy Uso tweet. Um, best right. analysis, commentary, and opinion was the Wrestling Observer. Um, for the individual writer awards, Mr. David Bixen Span, uh, who's available on Twitter at David Bix, uh, was able to win over uh, Dave Meltzer, Sean Ratsap. Ryan Satin, David Bixon's band, and Mike Johnson were all nominated. Best columnist went to Bruce Mitchell. Wait, so so um, Bix won for what category? He won for the best news reporter. Oh, okay. um, this was, of course, coming on the, okay. the heels of, of both the UFL stuff and on uh, some of the other stories that, that Bix was working on this year. Uh, best reviewer went to Larry Zonka. Uh, nice guy. Great, great uh, reviewer. Uh, up against Brandon Stroud, uh, Joe Lanza, Wade Keller, and Dave Meltzer. Uh, the podcast awards for best host went to uh, Jack Encarnacio. For part of the Laps Fan Podcast, uh, a podcast I only listened to when Dave Meltzer was on for a while there. Uh, it sounded like the Laps Fan uh, Podcast world is very well organized. Yeah. And so um, credit to them for understanding how to play the game. And, uh, they do entire pay-per-views and sort of watch them. Yeah. So so well, well organized both in terms of that but also in terms of getting the fans out to vote. He was saying he was like bombarded. By them and that they were doing almost like daily, you know, retweets saying, let's get you, get the word out, you know, make sure you vote. Which kind of makes it a popularity contest more than a who's a really good contest. But. Oh, I know. I think the credibility of the Sheedies could be hurt. Which is, uh, is my excuse for why I didn't win anything this year. Uh, the best co-host went to uh, Anna Bauer. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and the other nominees included J.P. Sorrow, Wei Ting, uh, Mike Sempervivi, and of course, Mr. Jeff Hawkins, so friends of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Best Podcasting Network, we had choices of MLW, Voices of Wrestling, Podcast One, uh, The Place to Be Network, Slash Pro Wrestling Only, and the Live Audio Wrestling. And it went to uh, the uh, MLW, the Major League Wrestling Network. Uh, good work by Court Bauer. Of course, I'll always give a shout out to the VOW. Uh, a network which uh, gets us going the best retro retro podcast was won by the laps fan uh the other nominees for that were between the sheets that uh stars chris zeldner and david bixon's band something to wrestle with with bruce pritchard which is conrad thompson and bruce pritchard review away uh which is john pollock and and uh waiting and what happened when uh best show review podcast went to review a raw review a smackdown which i think is uh, pollock and way uh best news podcast went to the wrestling observer radio and the uh, best news podcast. I don't know if that's right. I, I think uh, it got copied here. The title because the nominees of this category were Art of Wrestling, Talk is Jericho, Steve Austin, Wrestling Omokase, and Six Hundred Five Super Podcast. And the winner was Steve Austin Show. So that was obviously something else. Um, and then Writer of the Year went to Dave Meltzer, and the Wrestling Observer Story of the Year went to Bobby Heenan. Unfortunately, Mr. Brandon Howard did not win Writer of the Year. Sorry, Brandon. I think you got third or fourth. So. Mm. Let's say not last. I think that, that, I, I think this was Bix's year. Yeah, if uh, yeah. if we're going to really vote on uh, quality, uh, podcast of the year went to the Laps Fan. Uh, side of the year went to F4W Online, which was funny because um, Les made a really good point here, which is something I felt for a while, which is that there is a branding issue with F4W Online and WrestlingObserver.com, where a lot of people do not realize they are the same site. Mm-hmm. And that they think about Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer newsletter, but they don't understand why it's at a site called F4WOnline.com, which is the figure four weekly, not written by Brian Alvarez, the guy that you hear all the audio from. So it, I do think they have a big branding problem. And of course, they also have a, uh, a website problem because the day after New Japan, one of the biggest news days for them in the year, whole site went down, which was a real disaster for them. So unfortunately, traffic or just some other issue. I think their website host was having a big issue, um, mm-hmm. according to what they said. So that's that's really unfortunate for them. But hopefully drove a couple more people to go buy that Voices of Wrestling ebook over at uh, you can go to voiceswrestling.com, click on there, or it's available at PayHip and also at Amazon. So check it out. Uh, that's all the plugs I can think of doing right now. I'm at Mukigana. I'm also <laughs> at WrestleNomics. Uh, what can you plug right now, Brandon? You got some great new Fightful articles up, right? I have a, an article up at Fightful about the uh, Wrestle Kingdom 12 business. I have another article that we also talked about, about Steamboat and Savage, Okada and Omega, and how wrestling has changed and how those matches tell us about how it's changed you can follow me on twitter at brandon thurston you can email me at brandon at fightful.com you can give us money at patreon.com slash wrestlenomics and you can let us know what you think would make a good design for a uh a coffee, a mug. coffee mug yeah what column or bar graph would you like to see on a coffee mug <laughs> or or line graph Maybe even pie chart. I'm not sure if, if a pie I, chart is. No, we I, we will not use a pie chart. Pie charts are worthless. Um, I, I think I think it will be number of machinations. Are you very anti pie chart? I'm very anti pie chart. Pie charts are a terrible way to show information, unless it's it's the amount of the pizza the Pac Man has already ate. Yeah, that's the only one I like. All right, everybody, uh, check us out WrestleMomics.com, IndeedWrestling.com, tinyurls slash uh, Radio, all sorts of good stuff. Talk to you later. Bye bye.
In a world of one million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.